Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with you know issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. All right, welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 224, the season finale here for 2008. We're going to be back at the end of January with a fresh new season. In the meantime, we got a fantastic show for you this episode. We have got Autumn Hurlbert, who was on the uh, MTV reality show for Legally Blonde and is now starring in Glimpses of the Moon, telling us a lot about both areas of, that she's involved in. Also, we have got a uh, gift buyer's guide. We're playing tracks from a lot of uh, various new CDs that have come out that uh, might make the perfect stocking stuffer for your theater-loving friends. We have also got some great interviews. Gregory Jabara of Billy Elliot, playing the father, is uh, here for a really in-depth interview. We've also got James Barber, who was just recently the lead in Tale of Two Cities and has got his own holiday concert going on, talking to us. We're also going to be talking to the Resonance Ensemble about their two new shows, 23 Knives, Caesar and Cleopatra. And we've got uh, Ken Davenport here again with the producer's perspective. So we got a lot of great stuff for you. Now, as this is the last episode of the season, and it's a great episode, I think it's real time to really try to initiate a listener drive. So I'm asking you to help out with the economy in the shitter, so to speak. Uh, it would probably be a great thing for you to let all your theater friends know about this free offering of Broadway Bullet Podcast. Uh, besides telling your friends and maybe showing them how they can subscribe and do this all, uh, here's a couple other things that would really help us out. Um, now, number one, of course, I've mentioned a few times, but if you haven't written a five-star review for us in iTunes, please go and do so. A lot of the rankings for the featured section, which we're slipping on, is based on uh, review scores and uh, total listeners. And now here's the other thing. The charts are based, and don't ask how I know this, uh, are based on new subscribers in a 24-hour period. And there's a real easy way that you can help us out. Now, it may sound a little shady, but we all know what the people with the big budgets do to ensure chart placement, so I don't have any guilt telling you about this. If you just every once in a while, and ASAP and iTunes really quick, just hit unsubscribe, and then subscribe right away, you'll count as a new subscriber for that list and uh, zoom us up the charts and help more people discover the show. So now don't forget to resubscribe. Once you subscribe, we uh, want you, of course, still listening to the shows and you don't want to miss the new episode when we come back in on January. But yeah, if you could do that every once in a while, wow, big help. And uh, 
For any new listeners who are tuning in because they've heard about it from a friend or whatnot, a nifty little trick if you're subscribing to the enhanced AAC feed in iTunes is we've got chapters. So you can just hit, you know, forward or rewind and skip to the next session or back up and listen to the first thing that maybe you missed something and you want to listen to again. But it's an easy way to move through the program. And we got a big program for you today. So what say we hit it off? All right. Okay. On the boards. A while back, we did a feature on Glimpses of the Moon, which is a new musical playing at the Algonquin. It was in a limited run, but it is back in an extended run every Monday night from now until eternity. And we have got the new lead, Autumn Hurlbert, here in the studio Hello. with us. <laughs> and uh, some members of our audience may uh, recognize Autumn voice and name from a show she was recently in on MTV. Yes, sir. What was, what was that called? It was the longest title on the face of the planet. <laughs> yeah. It really was. It was Legally Blonde, the musical, colon, The Search for Elle Woods. The colon, yes. Oh, yeah. You have, to, I, you, have to, <laughs> you have to include that colon. It was part of the title. It earned a, it earned a space. <laughs> and, and you did rather well in that? I did. I made it all the way down to the final two. I was the runner-up. Okay, you know, I, I'm completely ignorant of, you know, these That's reality all right. shows, all right. so I gotta say, what does doing well on the show consist of? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, surviving, not having a mental <laughs> breakdown. That's what doing well meant. <laughs> um, it was, uh, we filmed in February and March of this year, and it <clears throat> basically started uh, with a rehearsal or uh, an audition process in New York, they had an open call. I was lucky enough to be submitted by my agent, um, and we auditioned with our own material and material from the show for tons of creative people from MTV and from Legally Blonde the Musical. And it, uh, we had one day of 50 finalists, and they cut us down to 37 and 25 and 15, and then there were 10 of us. Um, and the 10 of us lived in a house all together, and um, we competed for the role of Elle Woods, and we did some crazy stuff. We sang while on bicycles and danced like Beyonce on cobblestone in 30-degree weather in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> and basically, you know, one person got eliminated uh, every episode. And um, That's such a fresh format. Uh, yeah, really, right? You've never, I, this is news to your ears. You've never heard of anything so innovative. Wow. I'm fascinated. Yeah. yeah. Really? One person goes every week? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really new idea. Actually, there were a couple weeks where two people went home. Oh, even newer. Pretty amazing. MTV, man. Cutting edge. Um, but yeah, so I made it down to the to the last two people, and and one thing I'm you know really really grateful for is you know I didn't win the role of L, which is fine. It's you know everything happens as it should, but um, the very last episode we performed three numbers from the show, um, with full costumes, full tech, full cast, orchestra, everything, and it's recorded for eternity. <laughs> That's like my word of the day, I guess, eternity. <laughs> so that's what it was. That's what the, the competition was. Now, um, you've, you've done quite a bit of theater before this stuff. You, yeah, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've lived in New York for six years. Um, I, I went to school in Colorado, the University of Northern Colorado, and then I moved out here uh, September 15th, 2002. Um, and I was pretty lucky when I got here. I, I, I have been working pretty steadily, and um, 
had been really thankful for that. I was on the first national Broadway tour of Little Women, which was amazing, and I'm still wonderful friends with all those people. Um, and I felt like I was just kind of, you know, slowly climbing up the ladder, and then when this position for the Legally Blonde show came available, this opportunity, I kind of had to take it because it was, you know, you need you need a foot in the door sometimes. I had, felt like I had my foundation, and I got a little foot in the door, and it's been it's been very kind to me. And now I'm I'm doing glimpses of the moon, working with Mark Bruni, who's also the associate director on Legally Blonde, and Dennis Jones, who's associate choreographer. Um, so I, you know, it's it's been great. Yeah. Now, I there was I understand a lot of rather fresh green faces oh, green. in in the in, in the. <laughs> In the thing, was that what you were expecting, or? Um, you know, I, I knew the the only thing I knew going into the show was that, you know, it was a competition and it was all industry professionals, and there are varying degrees of industry professionals by definition. Um, but yeah, there were. I was definitely not a spring chicken in the group. <laughs> 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 there were there were some there you know. Uh, when it got down to the final four of us, there was an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, and then me. <laughs> Who, you know, I, I, I turned, yes. <laughs> I turned 24 on the show, and I will be that for the next 10 years, <laughs> if anybody asks. <laughs> now, were you expecting the the fish? We talked a little bit before you went in the in the booth. That you, yeah. The fishbowl environment. Were you actually expecting to be taped in your apartment? Uh, no. I, that, that was, you know, that was a... That was an interesting experience. It's you. You just don't. How much you have, of that you have stuff no do they privacy. Show? Well, I mean, they're they they are discreet. They don't you know show you going to the bathroom. Um, although there okay, was. I, was <laughs> I didn't miss anything. <laughs> no, you did not. Did not. There was one episode where I got food poisoning though, and they they. Uh, Actually, what's funny? Reality TV. I, I got very sick. I got food poisoning in an episode. They edited it. Edited. Edited it to look like um, that I had just gotten nervous and overwhelmed and threw up. <laughs> I guess that happens. That's the clause. That I've, seen, um, I've seen the American Idol contract, and it really basically, par I'm paraphrasing, but it really says, we can completely lie and turn whatever <laughs> we see into whatever we feel like. You know? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I do have to give credit to MTV. They really, they did take a few liberties with some creative editing, but for the most part... It, it was pretty. It was pretty truthful. It was. It was pretty. Uh, what you saw was what you got, for the most part. I mean, there were some situations that were. You know, I, it's. You're talking about high stress environment and like, you know, they make you think that if you don't win this competition, you will never work again. <laughs> you will be an abomination. You know. I mean, it's just. Uh, you know, it's really funny. So you, you think that. You think that's the end of the world if you don't win this. So you're all stressed out. Is that the same thing like if, you know, on like the flavor of love, if you don't get flayed? Yeah, then you're going to be lonely and barren forever. Because <laughs> I really look at, you know, I see the... flavor is the I catch. don't watch the show, but I just see the commercials. <laughs> oh, it's awful. I, I think I've watched going, one episode. Oh, I can't be without flame. And I'm like, really? Really? You can't live without flavor flame? Really? <laughs> there, I, okay. <laughs> there's a lot of men out there. I, you can't live without flavor flame. Then I think there's <laughs> there's many other things you might want to invest in looking at to enrich your life. But whatever. 
Um, yeah, so it was a crazy experience, and you know, having it all recorded, immortalized on film is sometimes a little embarrassing. How much time did you ever get to yourself? Did you none. Get none. None. No, 24 hours a day, you were with someone, with another girl from the show, with a producer. I mean, you know, you had to ask permission to go to the bathroom and. Uh, you know, you couldn't get your own food. Food, you know, meals were provided. So if you didn't like Indian food, that's too bad. <laughs> that was lunch, you know, or whatever they had, you know, chosen. And they, they were kind to us. They would, you know, give us menus and ask us what we wanted and stuff like that. But sometimes just, you know, a, a, any any film schedule can be really crazy. So, you know, you order a grilled cheese, but by the time you get it, it's a slice of cold American cheese and two pieces of bread. <laughs> 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 you know, Um but yeah, it was, it was, it's, you know, for, I think we filmed for almost four weeks and no contact with family, no, no, we didn't see any TV, no newspapers, uh, no internet, just no contact with anybody having, anybody that wasn't on the Legally Blonde team. So did you know that Obama was a candidate for president? Well, that was actually way, yes. <laughs> Although, I, when, when I did get out, I, was, I picked up a newspaper, and that's when all the Spitzer stuff happened. And I was like, wait, what, who, who's in charge? What's going on? What happened the here? The world fell apart. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm an avid New York Times reader, but as you, you know, most people know that sometimes— reading the times is like a soap opera if you haven't read it in a while you have a lot of catching up to do <laughs> you have to really do your research so i was i spent a lot of time catching up and sleeping i slept a lot when we got done so uh you got glimpses of the moon going on yes and uh tell us a little bit about your role in that and and, uh, and i obviously came to be involved probably a little bit in that due to mark bruni absolutely which i actually had kind of a heads up a while before the legally blonde thing happened i bumped into mark at at, at dance break oh places. yeah like going got a little thing going on we're going to be casting legally blonde with the show excellent like, how are they going to do it? Eliminate one girl a week. How unique. How unique. How, wow. Really innovative, guys. So interesting. <laughs> oh, Mark Bruni. He's a doll. He's, he's just a wonderful human being and so talented. And so, I mean, it, it was, I was so thankful to have the opportunity to, to work on a, you know, a new piece with him and um, just watch his process. He's very thoughtful and he's very generous. And um, just really smart. And, you know, our show is in, in the Algonquin Hotel in the Oak Room. So we've got, you know, tables and people eating and drinking and stuff going on. It's and, a, I, and I always you know, warn people because I actually, I went to the Algonquin for a cabaret show once not realizing that, you know, in New York, yeah. you can go any, even theater anymore. You can go jeans, T-shirt. Oh, absolutely. I didn't even think mm -mm. about it. As a press, I was invited to see a show, and I'd been working all day, and I was just kind of, you know, and I went, and I'm going, oh, wow, I feel underdressed. Here. I should have wanted to die. So dress up. It is. You know, it's, it's a, a classy it's a crowd. It's occasion to dress up. It is a classy crowd, and it is, um, it's so romantic. I mean, just you're in this historic hotel, in this historic room, um, and it's just classy and and beautiful. It's a beautiful experience, and the show fits really well in the space. It, it, with with you know sometimes uh, 
dinner theater can be a pain in the butt with people eating and distracted. Did you say dinner theater? I do. Well, it's not dinner theater. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> I that a dirty that, word? <laughs> <laughs> it is not dinner theater. We we, we don't. It's you a, get a meal and you watch theater. It's but it not is. Dinner theater. <laughs> it's dinner and theater. This is you know this is what I told a girlfriend of mine. I said um, I said you know it's. Uh, it's a great night out because you could go, you could take a date, you could go to a Broadway show and go to dinner, but here you're getting a show and dinner at the same time in this beautiful space with um, all this history, and it's just it's such a lovely show. It's you know anybody could fall in love with this show. It's it's a unique little love story. It's really creative, but you know it's a um, it's based on Edith Wharton's book um, Glimpses of the Moon, and it's. Really funny and lighthearted, um, but there are, you know, there's good. And the tone messages. of the show really suits the. the Absolutely, venue. it's it, it kind of you're kind of transported. I, a while ago, I went to this um, bar on the Lower East Side. That's a a restored. I guess it just never they never took it down, but it's an actual speakeasy, and you actually you feel you're like oh my gosh. I feel like I should be in a flapper dress, you know. <laughs> I'm getting, you know, my alcohol in a teacup. Um, but, you know, glimpses of the moon in this space because it's, a, you know, that 20s feel. You just, you're transported to another time. It's really, it's really special. Now, on another, I'm, I'm going to bring up another thing. Of what course. else does sort of TV stardom bring afterwards? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I always enjoy it because it's MTV and I don't no, know No, of how. course. <laughs> I was actually, I think I was really naive. I think I just didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for it when, you know, when we finished filming it was months and months until it aired, until it aired. so I couldn't really talk about it and it was kind of this, I was in limbo. Um, and then when it started airing, you know, there, you know, there would be a few people every once in a while that would be like, are you are you that girl on that show? Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, I'm totally watching that show. Well, congratulations. Then, as the episodes went on and on, and people, you know, become more and more fascinated and invested in you in the show, I realized that I couldn't come into the city in sweats and no makeup anymore because if I came into Midtown, uh, you know, 14 year old girls and gay men were like. Ah! <laughs> Are they really that big? I just don't think anybody really watches MTV anymore. No, it, so it was it was very it was honestly so surprised. I did not expect to be. It was a totally surreal experience to be recognized. You know, going to eat with friends and somebody coming up to the table. And I actually, I went to lunch with Larry O'Keefe one time, and we were on like the I think the Upper East Side. I don't even remember where we were, but we were we were sitting eating, and this. This woman stepped right up behind him and just started talking to me about the show and saying, oh, congratulations, and you were so great, and blah, blah, blah. And she was giving all of her very strong opinions about the show. And I was like, you know that this is Larry O'Keefe. He wrote the the music uh, and some of the lyrics for Legally Blonde. She hit him on the shoulder like he was her best friend and just was talking about the show. And she finally left, and Larry goes, I think she wanted us to invite her to lunch. I think she she wanted to sit down with us, but they just, it's it's kind of amazing. People watch a show like this, and because it's, it's, you're playing yourself on TV. They, They really form a bond with you. They really, they know more than you know about yourself sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was surprising. And I hear you've been doing some fundraisers and stuff as well. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of benefits and a lot of, um, uh, concerts and actually glimpses of the moon. The cast we just performed at um, Jim Caruso's cast party the other night, which was a lot of fun. We all got up on stage and performed the opening number. 
I loved I loved doing stuff like that. I just I love singing a lot. So any chance I can do it, I'll take it. Now, how long have you been running with Glimpses of the Moon? So because this has been open, um, so it has been open. We've been trying to get we... you in for a while, actually. So yeah, I know we've been cra- well, and it was crazy because I was in the, on the town, yeah. and we were yeah. It's, uh, a nasty schedule going there. Um, we started rehearsals for Glimpses on October 20th. Uh, we had previews October 20th and 27th, I think, and then we opened that next week. So we've been open for five weeks now. Um, so two more weeks, and we will have officially performed the show for a week. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have your eighth performance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is so weird to think about, but it's it's really... I don't know. It, it, I keep saying that it, you know, instead of being excited for Friday, I'm excited through the the weekend for Monday. It's a, it's a. I don't know. I love it. I love the show, and everyone in it is wonderful. It's you know, Darren Kelly is so char- is so charming, and there's Laura Jordan and Glenn Peters and um, Chris Peluso and Jane Blast. They're all they're all wonderful, and they. I don't know. They're perfect for it. We all we all love each other. A little love fest for glimpses of the moon. All right. Well, um, I know that there is a website. It's uh, surprisingly enough, uh, glimpsesofthemoon.com. How creative! <laughs> and if you go there, you'll find that one performance a week is eliminated. Yes. <laughs> yes. One performance down. <laughs> On to the next. And I'm assuming you can get tickets there at the, at the website. Um, you can, yeah, you can buy you can buy tickets online, and you can also buy them at the Algonquin, I believe. Mm, I don't think so. I think you have to go online. <laughs> That's why I'm an actor, not a producer. You can go online. Yeah, go online, and um, it's uh, it's just a great experience. Hello. <laughs> First up, for our gift-giving guide for CDs, Scott Allen, who was here with us last year when he released his debut CD, has got a brand new CD out entitled Keys, The Music of Scott Allen. Uh, You can find that on cdbaby.com or at iTunes, and we've got a special treat. This song is called Always, and it's performed by Sutton Foster. If there are times you find that you are feeling
Again, that was Always, performed by Sutton Foster, written by Scott Allen from his new CD, Keys, The Music of Scott Allen. And uh, hopefully I have a feeling we'll be seeing Scott Allen here on the program early in the new season. So go check that out, cdbaby.com or iTunes. The Callboard. This episode of The Callboard is sponsored by, well me with uh, Copperhead Production, my recording studio in New York. I'm offering a special thank you to all Broadway Bullet fans and listeners. Uh, Some of you may be looking for a great piano vocal, a simple demo. Uh, We can do a great sound, make you sound your best, and it doesn't have to cost a lot. And now, through January 15th, we're giving you 20% off our already great rates. So uh, you can find out more by going to michaelgilbo.com or copperheadproduction.com, where we have information about what the package includes. And uh, just give me a buzz at 646-345-3433 to set something up. And to get that extra 20% discount, don't forget to mention that you heard about it on Broadway Bullet. Now on to the callboard stuff. Tony nominee Deborah Rush is the latest addition to the starry cast of the upcoming revival of Noel Coward's Bly the Spirit, which begins performances February 26, 2009 at the Schubert Theater. As previously reported, four-time Tony winner Angela Lansbury will play psychic Madame Arcadi, and two-time Tony winner Christine Ebersol, yeah, you heard of her, haven't you, will be the ghostly Elvira in a cast that also boasts film star Rupert Everett, who will be making his Broadway debut, theater veteran Simon Jones, and two time Tony Award nominee Jane Atkinson. Michael Blakemore, who directed Lansbury and Deuce, will direct. Rush will play the role of Mrs. Bradman. Next, Spring Awakening, the Tony-winning musical based on the groundbreaking 1891 play by Frank Vedekund, may have posted its closing notice, but it still marks its second anniversary on Broadway December 10th. To mark the second anniversary of Spring Awakening's Broadway run, the cast and crew will celebrate with a special anniversary cake prior to the evening performance. Yeah, I wonder if the producers said, let them eat cake when they posted the closing notice. (laughs) Okay, next there is one theater in New York City where it's okay not to worry about dust. Actually, the name of the show is Dust, a new thriller starring Emmy Award nominee Richard Masur and Tony Award nominee Hunter Foster, which opens on Thursday, December 4th at 7 p.m. at the West Side Theater. The show is written by Billy Goda and directed by Scott Ziegler, with a cast that also features Laura E. Campbell, Curtis McLaren, and John Schiappa. And finally, perhaps the recent return to Broadway of Tony winner and forbidden Broadway favorite Liza Minnelli in the critically acclaimed Liza's at the Palace, with an exclamation point, was too good an opportunity to pass up. Forbidden Broadway Goes to Rehab has extended its off-Broadway run. The latest edition of Gerard Alessandrini's long-running review had been scheduled to end its run at Off-Broadway's 47th Street Theater January 15th in 2009. The production will now run through March 1st, 2009, according to Variety. And that wraps up the callboard. Let's get back to the program. Listening room. Next up for our holiday gift guide, it isn't a full CD, but it's a brand new holiday slash Christmas song from a longtime client of mine, John Raymond Pollard, has a new song called Wintertime Sky. Now, it's only available on iTunes as it's a single, but you know what? That means it's only 99 cents, and not only could you get it for yourself, but you can take advantage of iTunes' you know, gift this song to a friend and send it out to all your friends who are looking for a new holiday song. This was recorded here in my studio. I produced it, and it is called Wintertime Sky by John Raymond Pollard. When I was a child, I wanted to see if reindeer could really fly. Stayed awake on Christmas Eve and gazed at the wintertime sky. 
dream I thought that I was awake I saw a light shine on high Was it Rudolph's ruby glow That lit up the wintertime sky Santa came that day Reindeer pulled the sleigh Whether I was naughty or nice Who was there to say Maybe I saw an angel of light Or a meteor passing by I have that precious memory Of light in the wintertime sky Once again, that was John Raymond Pollard with a new Christmas song, Wintertime Sky. You can find that on iTunes, so go ahead and spring for the 99 cents and gift it to a friend using the iTunes gifting feature. Up close. From the Broadway revival of Damn Yankees to Victor Victoria to Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and most recently Billy Elliot, among others, and appearing as a guest and featured roles on seemingly every television show of the past decade, <laughs> Gregory Jabara is certainly a face you recognize, even if you don't see him here on in the interview. And he is here with us in the studio to talk about Billy Elliot as well as his career. How are you doing? I'm great, Michael. How are you? All right. Keeping crazy. <laughs> Getting ready to wrap up for the, the season and and get into the holiday mode, I guess. Yeah, and start wearing a lot more warmer clothes. 
<laughs> so, well, let's start off with, of course, your newest thing, you know, and the most exciting thing going on, I think, for you right now, which is you are the father in the new Broadway smash. It's clearly already a smash, Billy Elliot, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we opened uh, the 13th of November, and uh, it looks like, uh, in spite of the uh, economic climate, that we're going to be doing okay. The show is, uh, for the most part, really well received critically, and uh, has been selling really, really well even since our first preview. So it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun to be a part of this. Uh, this uh, it's a huge, huge show. Uh, yeah, I, I actually I haven't had a chance to see it yet, just because it's so full out that they, they they aren't giving out press seats till like next month. Yeah, I have family um, that are still going. What do you mean you I, can't get his tickets? <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard you'd think you know from the movie because it was such a small, so to speak, indie movie. You know, I've heard that this is really a big technical endeavor too. There's tons of hydraulics and sets and everything. You know that oh, you know, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily think of had you seen the movie. Yeah, yeah no, no, to, to put it in perspective, the uh, the Imperial Theater where I did Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, my 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 former home, uh, they they actually before loading in this show, they actually had to gut the entire uh, stage area. They took out the entire deck and they brought in uh, demo equipment and they dug a hole that was uh, over 14 feet deep and 14 feet square uh, to accommodate the space needed to lower uh, the house set. The Elliott house uh, comes up out of the floor. So in order to accommodate the 30 feet of space they needed, they actually had to go and spend apparently close to a million dollars excavating and uh, preparing the foundation so they could fit the set in. But they they, they, they found bones. Uh, I, I was told that they actually <laughs> found bones during the excavation and had to stop and have, like, forensics people come in and determine that they were actually uh, chicken bones. So there, <laughs> it was not some, you know— Somebody snacking while they yeah, were laying yeah, way, way back, you know, when, when there were streetcars around. Yeah, but so it was not some ancient burial ground or, you know, the site of uh, Jimmy Hoffa's resting place. Uh, they were able to proceed with the, uh, the, the construction to then load in the show. So yeah, so big show and big big show. It's gonna run a while, we think. Yeah, I think I think it's gonna do quite well. Uh, on the big side, we have um, there are fifty one actors employed by the show, and then you think subsequently you've got the seven or so guardians that manage the twenty three children who are employed by the show, and then you've got the huge crew and you got the the immense wardrobe department to handle all the wardrobe for the fifty one actors. Uh, it's and then the people you know front of house. It's a it's it's a beautiful thing that this show has been well received because it means a lot of us are going to have a job for as long as we want it. Which is yeah, it's good. It's employing a lot of people since about half the houses it seems are going dark in January. I know it, it's 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 uh, it's actually a little sad uh, right now. It's a little depressing. We, I just went to the. Um, the Gypsy of the Year competition, which was over the New Amsterdam, and sadly, one of the skits was 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 mocking the fact that we're going to have like uh, 14, 14 houses dark by I think mid January, which is not a good thing. Uh, but uh, but in, that being said, I, I feel all of us on the show I know feel really really blessed that we seem to be uh, able to survive the the current economic climate. Just out of curiosity, what's the longest run you personally have done in one show? The, the longest I've ever was a show called Forever Plaid, and I, I did it 
pretty consistently over about a two-year period. I ended up doing it in several different venues, starting at the Ford's Theater in uh, Washington, D.C., when the original cast was still doing the show for no money. I mean, like peanuts at Steve McGraw's. Uh, we went, they, they, they finally cast the show for the first time for this production at the Ford's Theater. And we started, at, we, we ended up doing it at the Ford's, then at the Coconut Grove. We uh, did New Year's Eve at the, the opera. We sold out the opera house at the Kennedy Center on New Year's Eve. And then we played like the mechanic. Uh, we went to Japan. Uh, and then I did it, uh, the same cast that included Michael Winther, Neil uh, Nash, Paul Bonato, and myself. Uh, we also did it at the, the uh, Old Globe in San Diego. But we kind of vowed that we really wouldn't do the show uh, unless it was all four of us together. So we, we pretty much stuck together for, for about a two-year period there. But the, my, my Broadway life, uh, I'm, I've been pretty lucky. Uh, my, right after uh, Forever Plaid, I had gotten Damn Yankees. James Raitt, who is the arranger, uh, orchestrator for uh, Forever Plaid, musical director, um, was musical director on Damn Yankees, which was the real impetus to get me involved in Damn Yankees. And then I kind of went from, I went right from Damn Yankees to uh, Victor Victoria because choreographer for Damn Yankees, Rob Marshall, was then choreographer for uh, Victor Victoria. And then I went from Victor Victoria to uh, Chicago where I took over for Jimmy Naughton for the summer of uh, 1997. I did like three and a half months. And then, um, and then I moved to L.A. And then, uh, and then I guess, yeah, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I think I did the show for about a year and a half. And, uh, and then moved back to Los Angeles. So I, after doing uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, uh, my kids at the time, uh, I had a six-month-old, six and uh, I guess Zachary was like th four. And um, I promised my wife that we would stay in L.A., I wouldn't do any more theater. We'll let the boy, they're in a terrific Waldorf charter school. It's a half a mile walk from our house. And we'll, we'll just stay there. I won't take jobs in New York. I'll just keep working in, in LA. And then came the, uh, the writer strike last holiday season. And we, I kid you not, were living off of savings over, over Christmas, which is like one of the most depressing things as an artist you could ever do. Because it's like you're going, and there was no end in sight because, you know, all, all of L.A. just basically was crippled by the writer's strike. On a side note, do you think with that, do you think there is going to be an actor's strike? Well, it seems to me like it would be devastating in this economy. and That and was the motivation for taking, then pursuing this job because the writer's strike, it was like, it was like, I mean, it brutalized us. And then... The, uh, we're going, and I'm thinking, and we're, we knew that the SAG contracts were up in July. And I said to my wife, you know, I, we don't want to go through this again. We Maybe I need to really seriously consider a, a job back on an equity contract in New York uh, just to protect ourselves. And that's really how I even considered uh, the Billy Elliot thing. And, and it was my agents who... In, who, you know, figured they'd never see me for the next eight years, who called saying, we know, we know what you said, we know that you want However, they're still looking for a dad, and we really think that this is something you should consider going after. And uh, I went and I'd seen the film originally, you know, when it first came out, and that was before I had become a parent. So for me, 
I really identified with Billy's journey as an artist who comes from, you know, working class world. I'm a, I'm a product of, you know, 15 miles west of Detroit, Michigan. You know, everybody I grew up with, all my relatives, they all worked at the, the Wayne truck plant, you know, or worked for Ford or General Motors or, you know, I mean, that was the world that we lived in. Uh, nobody uh, made a living as an artist, you know, where I grew up. But uh, so being the, the Billy journey, that was what I really identified and really uh, struck me in the film. But then when I went back and watched it again, uh, having two sons now at ages of, you know, four and seven, uh, I, the film had a profoundly different resonance for me. I, I really, I mean, of course, I was pursuing the role of the dad, so I was looking at that with very uh, specific interest. But it, 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 for the first time, I, I felt, you know, I think I think I have something to offer this role. I think I understand uh, this man's heart. I understand his conflict. I think I think I have something I could offer this job. I think it's worth pursuing. I think it would be a great challenge. And uh, uh, and fortunately, uh, after I mean, I had to fly myself out. You know, uh, there there have been times for Broadway jobs where, since I moved to LA, where the casting director or the producers will say, "Yes, we'd like." To Greg to consider this, and you know they'll they'll pop for three hundred bucks and put me up at the Hilton in Times Square, and it's like you know being treated like royalty, which is really nice. But this show, Billy Elliot was um, uh, everybody wanted to be in it, uh, and everybody and their mother was auditioning for it. So they didn't they didn't say oh I mean because it was us my agent it was me and my agent who pursued the show and said we'd we'd like Greg to be seen from this and they said great. And but they said, well, we're not flying them out, and we're not putting them up, and uh, so I, I really had to, you know, I had to be very clear and that I wasn't wasting my time, that it was something I really wanted, and and I and I, I can honestly say I worked harder for this audition than I have for anything else, and uh, fortunately, the uh, the two uh, what seemed like fleeting, you know, hour and a half uh, sessions that I had over three days with the uh, creative team. Uh, when I when I left and flew back, uh, I'd left the impression that they they also thought I was right for the role, which was which was fantastic. Now, um, how, was the audition process for this much different than a lot of things that you've done before? It, it, actually, it was. Um, uh, like I, so, uh, let's see if I can do a, like a Reader's Digest version. So, I'm, <laughs> so I'm a dad, so I, I want to be away from home as you know little as possible. So I took a red eye Sunday night. Monday, I get in. I land at uh, LaGuardia Airport, come, come straight to Times Square, uh, make a 10 a.m. Uh, dialect coaching session with uh, William Conacher, who's the show's dialect coach, because they were so they got they were so exhausted by hearing bad Scottish, Irish, Cockney. You know, it's like to them, Americans coming in trying to nail this Geordie accent, which is so specific, was sort of like us listening to a Brit come in and audition with a, a Texas accent when, accent when they're supposed to be playing somebody from Long Island. You know what I mean? And, and to them, it's an American accent. And, and I guess for us, you know, we, we weren't uh, – <laughs> the um, acting community at large was not really nailing that Geordie accent. So they started uh, requiring uh, in the callback sessions – that the uh, actors work for an hour with a dialect coach to find out if you're even capable of doing it because it's such it really is such an important part of the show the, you know really capturing the authenticity of that 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 Geordie world so i had that dialect session and then can you can you now just like riff in that dialect or i mean can uh, you just like chat 
You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I suppose I can. Yeah, you know, I can like, you know, talk a bit. Okay, so the next like minute of the to. interview, you'll, you'll let's do it. All right, let me, <laughs> all right, I'll try. I'll try to do it, you know, fairly authentically. Um, but uh, let's see. So so the, 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 uh, the audition itself, when I walked in, uh, what really happened over the next uh, hour and a half was that the, the director, Stephen Doldry, and uh, Julian Weber, uh, they're really a team of uh, directors. The, you know, it's Stephen Daudry, but really Julian Weber is this amazing foil who keeps, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ju- uh, Stephen on his toes. And uh, what they showed me in an hour and a half was they could direct me to do anything, absolutely anything. It was like there was no place we couldn't go, whether it was the the, the, the lowest, lower depths to the greatest euphoric highs, that they, they were such facile directors with a phenomenal uh, vocabulary for directing that, that I left the audition going, I, I can do anything. If these guys are directing me, I can do anything. And, and it was like I was seduced. I really was. I came away from the first audition going, God, I got to have that job. I got to work with these guys because it's like, I feel like a real actor working with them, you know. So uh, I, went, <laughs> I went home. They said, oh, I'm, and I'm leaving. Stephen says, so how long are you in town? And I said, well, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stick around for as long as you need me here because uh, this is the reason I've, I've come. And uh, so you tell me when I'm going home. So he said, oh, okay, great, that was fantastic. So then I left, and then like the next day they called and said, we'd like Greg to come back in and uh, look at some other scenes. And uh, it, it, it was all the, the comedy, the light stuff, the really silly, goofy stuff that happens in the London scene. That they, and it's, you know, big shtick, you know, that kind of crazy stuff uh, I can do really easy. So I thought, oh, this would be an easy day. So I walked in with the new funny scenes where I just do a lot of reacting and goofy faces, you know, that kind of thing. And, and they went, oh, no, that's not what we want. Well, who gave you this? No, that's, no, we want, to, we want to do the scene where you tear your heart out and where, you, you know, you're basically puking up your soul on the stage. <laughs> and it was like, oh, that's great. That's what I really want to be doing. So uh, so the, the second audition, we... we um, so I'm back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Oh, I know. Not only did you do the accent, but you also took on a lot of the, the slang and the the pattern of speaking as well. Yeah, uh, I, I tried. I tried. I, I have to admit, <laughs> I'm I'm very dependent on the written word. Uh, Lee <laughs> Lee Hall makes my job really easy. Uh, you know, doing his uh, his words. But um, the second, so the second audition, we they they took, put put me through yet another big emotional roller coaster, and we really took some chances, and and it was like. It was like the best acting training class, you know. I've, and I went. I'm a Juilliard graduate. I mean, I've had, I've been deconstructed, rebuilt, you know, been given like one of the industry's highest stamps of approval as a Juilliard graduate actor. But I can tell you, in that, in those two hour and a half sessions, I, I'd never felt so, uh, so uh, gratifyingly challenged. So then I wanted the job. I wanted the job so bad. So uh, the. Um, uh, what parallels the story, you know, and the whole families when the letter finally comes saying whether Billy got into that school, uh, I can I can still remember how badly, how badly I wanted them to say that I, I got to play dad, and it, and it was only a two week wait, which wasn't too bad, uh, and and I can honestly say it's it's been it's been the greatest uh, personal and professional experience of my life to date. Now, one of the questions I had is, it's been a while since there's been this kind of prepackaged, guaranteed big hit shipping over from the UK. Yeah. Uh, and 
So basically, you're originating the role in America. You're going, you know, you'll hopefully be Tony eligible and yes, know, all that stuff. But exactly, my question is, is though, you be, although you're originating the states, you're essentially, in some ways, a replacement is some as with some of the creative team. Yeah, well, and and yet the creative team did say, um, we want to deconstruct it. That's we, a, yeah, and that's what I was wondering is how much freedom you had to recreate it completely. They said they said here's here's the thing here are the things we've always wanted to do differently. We just ran out of time, uh, or we ran out of money. Mostly it's time, you know. Once once you you know you were trying stuff. They rehearsed the show in the West End forever apparently, and uh, but um, but they were they, you know once it's locked and frozen you can't touch it again. And, and the creative team was going oh you know I wish we could have tried this and I wish we could have tried that. So when we went into rehearsal. Uh, the first two weeks, we never even looked at the script. We all we did on a fully uh, mocked uh, rehearsal set, they, an entirely a functioning rake stage with all the moving parts uh, on the little Schubert stage over on Forty Second Street. We did. We experimented. We workshopped whole new scene changes with all new scenic pieces. Like they, they did like modified versions of new trucks for um, for the scene when dad becomes a scab and there's they they made this whole they had this whole new concept of how to make it much more kinetic. And so they had to try all these things, these these big things that involved uh, uh, scenic changes because if they liked it and they thought it was the right fix and change. Then they had to go and have a shop build all this new stuff before we began previews. So before we ever dealt with the book, we did we did two weeks of just trying new stagings of new things because they had if, if they liked it and they wanted it to happen, then they had to go and have these things built so that they'd be done. And you know, welding. We're talking about you know big time welding and painting and you know and 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 big expenditures. You know, so uh, and, and I can say virtually everything that they wanted to try new uh, in terms of the staging conceptually, uh, they implemented in our show. Um, the journey from where um, Billy has his dream ballet all the way through to where Billy sings Electricity. Uh, it's it's the um, everything that happens in there, which is really the big power arc for Dad's character, all that stuff got completely reconceived, restaged, new scenery, new new book scenes, you know, condensed, reworded. So, uh, and then uh, Tony, who is the older son in the Elliot family, they they changed his uh, arc as well in terms of how he fit into the story. So they did, and they also then there are, of course the uh, Mr. Braithwaite. Uh, played by uh, Tommy Redder, who's also a native Michigander like myself, uh, but f he was came, he lives now in Los Angeles. They, you know, like his his dance number now has this fantastic tap jump rope thing that happens, and uh, uh, you know, all the, the, based on the talents of the, of the cast of the you know the Americans that are doing the show, they they we you know they did different vocal arrangements, they did different. They, they, they goose the choreography here and there based on, you know, what we could or couldn't do from the previous production. So they didn't just sit back and say, here's how it goes. Here's what we want you to do. We spent every single day of rehearsal right up until the first critic night, which was like the Friday before we opened. We never stopped rehearsing, never stopped changing, never stopped rewriting, right up until the end. And I know that Stephen and Julian and Lee and even Peter Darling would say, you know, if we had another week, if we had another month, we could keep working on this thing. And we were all like ready to pull our hair out. It was like, you know, three, we, we rehearsed, we teched for a month. 
the show, technically, there's a lot of big holes, and you got 23 kids, and there's big things that flying over from above. So you, you really had to take your time and make sure that the, the traffic of the children was safe, that everybody knew where they had to be. Because when, when that set decides to open up and you end up with a big, open, vast black space where the, the dream ballet takes place, all that scenery crushes off stage. So there's no room for human people, you know, human <laughs> beings on that deck. So it took a lot of time and a lot, a lot of choreography just to make the offstage life safe. So we did a month of tech rehearsals because once something was fixed and locked and set, then you had to do it with every single Billy. And there are four of them. I mean, there's the three that everybody knows, but you also have Tommy Batchelor, who is the understudy, who will soon be going into rotation and performance as well. So everybody had to be, you know, safe climbing up and down these things that were shooting up out of the floor or, or flying in the sky. I mean, we have, there's a Foy flying rig where the, all the Billies are flying during the dream ballet. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous technically heavy stuff that you have to take your time and make sure that everybody's safe, and especially where children are involved. So that that made the, the rehearsal, the, the tech process and the rehearsal process even longer because we did. We ended up doing, uh, we're going to run act one today. Oh, uh, yes, for so-and-so, we're going to do it for David in the morning, then we're doing it for <laughs> Krill in the afternoon, and then tomorrow afternoon we're going to do it for, you know, uh, Trent. And then the day after that, we'll do it for Tommy. So it was like everything had to be for, done four times. Granted, the the adult cast was well rehearsed. Uh, I, I really, I still think to this day that even with the rotation that Billy's have, that they, they they may, I would imagine I would be still feeling like they're shot out of a cannon when they've had a day or two off, you know, and have to get back on stage. Now, with the, the four Billies, how much does their approach change your perception of your role night to night? I was talking about this with, with Hayden Gwynn, who plays Mrs. Wilkinson. And she said, you know, uh, excuse me, I'll get some more. Oh, by all means, have some. She said, you know. You want to plug the brand? <laughs> when we, can we do that here? This is the best Dasani by the Coca-Cola company I've ever had in this studio today. Um, the, uh, in, on the West End, they would have like a full company rehearsal and warm up uh, before every, every show. And um, Hayden was just talking about that nostalgically because her, her, her track, she doesn't really interact with anybody else other than Billy and the ballet girls. So she doesn't really get to see the rest of the company during the course of the show because everybody's always on stage busting their hump every single show. Um, but she was also talking about the fact that that, that was also the time for them to, like, help fine-tune, like, directorial things that are kind of getting loose, especially with one Billy might be doing something a little bit different or kind of, you know, things might be falling a little slack. And we don't have that here because everybody basically just shows up at 7.30 and goes and does their show. I mean, there's a there's a little fight call to make sure that no one's really getting clocked in the biscuits, you know, for some of the stunt fighting that happens and that kind of thing, which is just smart safety uh, warm-up. But uh, there, there was no protocol for... Uh, kind of like touching base with all the actors before the show. Hey, you know when we do this, can you just stand a little further left? Or did you know that you're, you're actually, you've cut off, you're, you're skipping a line? I mean, things like that can fall through the cracks and it doesn't exist. She goes, she goes, are you having that problem with the Billies? And I said, well, 
I'll be honest with you, when I'm on stage with them, I basically either just drag them around the stage and beat the living tar out of them <laughs> or scream their head off. You know, I said, I don't, there really isn't a lot of, when we're on stage together, I'm either, you know, sitting, standing, gawking, crying at their amazing grace and beauty, or I'm incensed and, you know, tearing them a new one. So there, it's like, I think I can pretty much beat up any child that's, you know, <laughs> put in my clutches. So that, that, that should be the quote that we'll pull out. I can now beat <laughs> up any child. I can beat up any <laughs> child. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want my kids. Beyond the National Enquirer, Gregory Jabara <laughs> is a child abuser. <laughs> Gee, that does sound good, doesn't it? <laughs> but, you know, then I realized, yeah, no, uh, I mean, they, they've all been, uh, there's a lot of kids. And I think that the creative team has figured out how to rehearse the children so they all learn the show and how to hit the marks that need to be hit. You know what I mean? And then there's room inside because it would be absolutely wrong and unfair to say that all, all four of our abilities are the same because they're, they're nothing the same. They are each uniquely different and uh, uh, and are each worth seeing, uh, honestly, just because of their individual magic on stage. But, um, yeah, I, I don't it, – it doesn't really – affect me because the things that really depend on them for them are maybe comic timing things and they're all just right on the money and uh, and, and it's f free enough too that each one can play in their own certain way and the, the story and the script and the direction allows for that kind of freedom. Now when you every time you mention kind of the creative team and you and you mention some names one name I've heard is kind of left out so I'm kind of wondering how often or how day-to-day -day of Sir inter interest Sir Elton John had in okay, the production? Okay, somehow, I think I just shorted out my... What did I... Oh, oh. there we go. I'm back. Okay. I'm back. Um, yeah, well, he he did all his work on the West End. I mean, he spent all of his hours. He wrote all the tunes. He, he was around. He did all the work. And then after, you know, the show's up and running and they've already done the Australia, I, I guess he realized... You know, if anything's going to be changed now, it's going to be like a, a, a transitional music, which is not the stuff he does. An orchestrator takes his melodies and then, you know, sculpts whatever is needed either dramatically for transitional things. So his work was really done. Plus, you know, he's out being a, you know, philanthropist, raising money for all these causes and doing his show in Vegas and appearing all over the world. So... Um, it was not as easy for him to be around, but he he showed up uh, he showed up like a couple of days before we opened to see all the Billies you know do a performance, and we actually got to meet him uh, officially after the first the first preview that he came and uh, attended the show, and he's wonderfully kind and gracious. Uh, his his partner in life is also our executive producer uh, David Furnish, and David is uh, around all the time. So, um, as our producer, so it's not. So he was basically, you know, Elton's eyes and ears. But creatively, I mean, I'm sure it, you know, there were no new songs written. There was no need for new music. All that stuff worked, and you know, so uh, for the most part, he was. He kind of, you know, we we got a big mega dose of him around the opening, and then you know, he's he's off back doing his work again. Just like the, I mean, all the. We've sort of been cut loose. All the creative team is now gone. You know, with the music I've heard from Billy Elliot, one thing I have to say is I really wasn't thrilled with Sir Elton John's work on Aida and Lion King, personally. I felt it... I, I mean, not that it was bad, but I didn't feel it was, to me, stand out. And, and that was the only, for me, the only misgiving I had about Billy Elliot. But when I actually heard the soundtrack, it's nothing like 
his work on those other shows, and I actually think it brings in much more of his uniqueness as who he was as an artist. I think I think you're right because it, it tapped sort of his like his personal life, his understanding of like the culture in which he was raised. Because the 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 music here really um, it's a world he knows. So I think he because was the other shows. He it felt like he was trying to do Broadway music, right? And this show, it felt like he was just trying to tell the story. Yeah, and like he's coming to his own as a theater composer. Yeah, I, I, I have to. Uh, uh, is this where I admit I've never taken my kids to see Lion King, or and I still have never listened to Aida, Aida, even though I may have told like several of my friends that I've worked with that I love them in it. Now I'm being found out as a liar. Um, so I don't, I don't really know those scores to. Or did I see uh, what was his uh, vampire musical they did with Bernie Taupin? Um, I never saw them all. I never saw any of them. Haven't listened to them. Don't know the music, and I'm admitting it. But uh, what I can say about what I do know about this show is that it's um, uh, it, it's a perfect marriage of of his music, uh, Lee Hall's lyrics, and and then the artistry of the creative team to uh, you know to realize it on the stage and how to interpret it. And it's 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 uh, I can't wait for you to see it because uh, it's a surprise. I can say. Every day we learn a new number, and you know we have ideas of how we think songs are going to go based on the words we know and the music melodies we've heard and the arrangements. And then you see what they want you to do with it, and you go, "What were you guys smoking when you came up with this?" Because I never, I never would have conceived of this ever in my life. I mean, honestly, there are going to be so many of those moments in the show. You're just going to go, "Okay, I am in awe. I am merely poop on your shoe." Because you guys are geniuses. I mean, they really have just done things with songs. It's just amazing. Truly amazing. And we, we would, every day in rehearsal, we just go, oh, man, this is cool. I, I had no idea. It's, it's, it really is a, a great marriage of, of Elton John's gift as a composer and the words and the staging. It's, it's, it's a perfect marriage all the way around. Now... Moving on a little bit to some of your other career highlights, I, I know Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is personal, one of my personal favorite musicals of the past decade. I know I, it has a very feverish following as well. Oh, yeah. And I got to make out with Joanna Cleason and eight you got times to do another a week. Yeah. <laughs> that was nice. That was nice. Yeah, uh, you did another accent. <laughs> I did, yeah. Yeah, what's that about? I know, I can't wait. Well, I got to, and what, uh, I got to get, I was pretty close to my... My uh, Michigan roots when I played Billy Flynn in Chicago, but uh, yeah, I was I was very French in uh, in the uh, in, in Dirty Round Scoundrels. I don't know. I guess I've I, yeah, that's a good thing. I think being able to sort of step into another dialect kind of helps sort of uh, you know solidify a character in some ways. It was, it was that, that was a lot of fun and a lot of yaks and very different than uh, <laughs> than this job. This job. You know, there's no farting and laughing in Billy Elliot for uh, for for Dad in this show. It's it's it is truly uh, different than anything I've ever been able to do before on the Broadway stage. It's 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 like a I'll quote uh, George Firth wrote a play called uh, Precious Sons, and I had the privilege of doing the West Coast premiere of that play um, uh, with Nora Dunn, and while George was still alive and. It, it was not unlike this in terms of this dad struggle, although the mother was still alive, but he had two sons, and it was like, you know, what's the balance between loving and 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 the dysfunction? And and it was a, it was a 
and I got to really, you know, sink my teeth. George Firth, after opening night, said, your performance was a complete roast beef dinner. And, and so I always use that as sort of like the epitome of a really full, rich, gratifying role. And now for me, this job of playing Dad and Billy Elliot, for me, it's like experiencing a full roast beef dinner every single night. <laughs> now, we're, we're going to play here. We, since we don't have uh, the American cast according to Billy Elliot yet, yeah, and, like you know, play something of you singing here. Let, oh, so we're, well, we're going to pull something from Scoundrels, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. You, you, anything you want to say about like this, like that? Any um, story behind what, it? Uh, well, it was the, the, the song, like this, like that, actually did not exist until maybe at least at least a month into rehearsals. I think I think we had like two and a half weeks left of rehearsals before we started previews in San Diego. And Yazbek had still not written the song. Because the, the, you know, the character, uh, they had a, I was bringing a different thing to the role than how they thought it was going to be. They, they kind of thought that the, the, the inspector was going to be a little more preeny and a little more uptight and a little more, and I brought him, I made him a little more perhaps, I don't know, just maybe just because of my size. Maybe it just brought something different to the role. But then they decided to spin it, uh, the, the, the relationship ended up becoming a little sexier and a little bawdier. And then Yazbek got inspired by, um, uh, you know, um, oh, now where did, where did, uh, well, the song, uh, Like This, Like That, is, uh, you know, Like This, what, what, who's the guy who was his inspiration? Um, I can't even think of his name now. Um, great, you know, like a big band leader from uh, from the the early fifties. Uh, why can't I? he was not he, Jack Brell? Was it? No, he played he played the he was the the monkey in uh, Jungle Book, uh, the the musical Jungle Book. He was the voice of uh, Louis Prima. That's what I'm thinking of. It was it was it was this was an homage to Louis Prima, and. Uh, Gosh, I haven't talked about this in four years. Um, so, but and it came really, really late in rehearsal, and he, they they literally kicked Yazbek out of rehearsal for two days. Said you can't come back into this building until you have written their song. They have to have their song. And in the script, when I auditioned for the show, it said it was like like a third of a page. It said at this moment there'll be some musical number that realizes this attraction that Muriel has with Andre, and that's all it said for like two months of rehearsal. We never. And then finally he wrote it. He came and played it on the piano for, for all of us who were there. And then Jerry Mitchell literally just goes, I know what I want to do. And Jerry Mitchell, that was the first time Jerry Mitchell, our choreographer, heard the number. He just literally went into the other studio. 30 minutes later, grabbed Joanna and me and said, let's go. We're going to stage it. And, and, and the whole thing literally came together uh, in, an, in an afternoon. Yazbek wrote it, you know, in 20, probably wrote it in, in less than 48 hours. And then uh, after we all heard it, Mitchell had it staged in half a day. And it's one of the most glorious. To be waltzing around an empty stage as the, the city just kind of disappears into the sky. And to be, you know, romantically reclined on a stair with her at the end of the song was just absolute bliss. All right, well, let's take a listen to you and Joanna Gleason singing like this, like that from the original cast recording of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Like this, the moon, as round as a balloon, suspended like a bubble in the sky. Like that, the tune that wafts above the dune and sweetly flutters like a butterfly. If the past were plus parfait, we'd have met another day. 
when we both were young and gay and clean. But the present's rather tense, so I think it makes some sense for us to both give up. Give in like that, the sky, a shooting star goes by, a message you and I cannot dismiss. So I'm wishing for a dose of being nice and close, like this, like that, like this. Of the future, who can tell? Though we hope it turns out well, no one can know just when his bell will toll. So let's live in the here and now. Let it show us how to find a way to lose control. Like that, the rose, delightful to the nose, but nowhere near as perfect as a kiss. And though I am no prince, no prince, my looks may make you wince. No wince. I offer you romance. Romance. Ah, oh, come on, let's dance. <laughs> been introduced. I'm Muriel of Omaha. Pleased to meet you. It's mutual. Delightful to the nose, but nowhere near as perfect as a kiss. I like this. You like that? I like that. So do I. I like this. Like this. Well, most for focuses on theater. I, I can't help but when I looked at your IMDb credits, it's it really seems like you've practically been a guest on almost every single TV show of the past decade. Definitely one of the perks <laughs> of living and working in LA. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a musical theater void, but uh, or theater wasteland. But it is a a great place to yeah cut your teeth doing uh, TV and film work. Now, with all the guest spots, what I, what I kind of imagine is. Do you get a lot of people who recognize you but don't necessarily know your name or you know, you, you know yes on a, I think the grounded for life since it went into syndication on ABC family uh, people definitely recognize yeah, that was me from a that. Re recurrent role that you played yeah it that was that yeah, I, I would I do like about I think it did maybe 12 or 12 to 15 episodes over the course of four seasons on that show um, but uh, yeah, mostly uh, the, the the Friends episode. I did a Friends episode in the final season. That one would uh, would garner a lot of recognition for me. People would go, "Hey, yeah, I saw you in that thing. You were 
in the pyramid with Joey. He was really stupid. Yeah. That was, uh, but most I don't I really don't I don't think uh, when uh, In and Out the movie In and Out came out I, I would be recognized as Kevin Klein's uh, dumber dumber fatter young brother and then uh, and now uh, this Cadwick commercial that I've got that's running uh, for high blood pressure and high cholesterol where I'm uh, tango dancing with uh, my wife in this exotic Spanish restaurant locale and it runs all the time. All, and and the, the crazy thing is people will come up to me, hey, I, you're the guy in that uh, erectile dysfunction commercial. <laughs> and I'll go, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I know that Pfizer is going to be so happy. <laughs> They're going to go, is this spot really doing what we want it to do? It's, people are buying it, but they think it's going to improve their love life. But, yeah. uh, but uh, now in, in New York, this show, this show, I, I, I mean, I, I'm with my kids a lot in the streets. And uh, just today, oddly, I guess it has to deal with what time of day I'm walking around the streets of New York City. But if I'm walking around lunchtime, a lot of people will stop and say hello. Most of them will say, I'm sorry, I know you're with your family, but I just want to tell you I, I really enjoy Billy Elliot. And it's like, and that's nice. Uh, you know, the, the TV stuff, typically, you know, you get recognition. But, uh, I mean, I started out as a stage actor, and I think that's the reason I like uh, doing theater more than I do TV and film. And it's not because I, I mean, I definitely love the applause. But it, it's that because, you know, I'm not acting, I'm not acting to be alone. You know what I mean? I'm not doing it for me, really. Uh, theater every night, you know, it's an interactive experience. You put something out there and the audience responds and then there's, you know, it's a give and take. You do TV work, you, uh, other than sitcom work, where you might be able to hear the din of the studio audience behind all the cameras and, and baffling in a soundstage. But f for the most part, you're, you're kind of just doing the acting work. And, and I always find myself wanting to go to a screening of a movie I've been in or, or a screening of a series that's launching because I want to I hear people laugh. I, wanna see, I, wanna, I, I need to hear the reaction you know, to the work that uh, just doing the work alone uh, really, oddly, is not enough. It, it really, I'd like to hear, you know, I'd like to hear it affect people. With all the guest work you've done, I'm kind of curious how, um, what the dynamic is uh, frequently coming into sets where there's this whole team and family and they work together every day and you're coming in to do your thing for, you know, the week. I have, I can honestly say Brian Cranston, who was the dad on Malcolm in the Middle, and, and I've worked on, uh, there, there, there's only been one show where there was one person who literally, uh, but let me give Brian Cranston his due. Um, he, he is the king of making you feel like, I mean, granted, we, pay, we played Next Door Neighbor Best Friends on the episode that I guessed it on Malcolm in the Middle, but he really, and, and Jane Kaczmarek, who I've known for a long time, uh, but he really, um, and, and we're, we still, to this day, I mean, we're, uh, we, we'll still text uh, for if we're, he's, he's got that new show. Have you seen a series, uh, Breaking Bad, that's on uh, I've heard the name American of the show, Movie Channel? Oh, he won an Emmy for it and uh, just this past season. And he's, he's finally, he's being recognized as the genius actor that he is because, you know, he was sort of like the unsung hero in, in Malcolm. But back to him as a human being, he's... Uh, he he's like the greatest guy in the world, and not not 
simple BS. You know what I mean? This guy, he genuinely embraces you and values you as a human being and, and makes you feel welcome because he understands how important that is. Because your question, you know, walking into a new group, people who all know know each other, he's the guy who goes, come on, we're taking you. You're, you're part of us now and you're in. And for the most part, that, that really was the case on every job I've ever gone into, ever, uh, except for one. And uh, I, I can't say what the show was <laughs> or who the woman was who was the star of the show. But um, it, it was like I walked into the soundstage for the first time and everybody was, you could tell, was in fear for their job. And it was really tense and it was really horrible. But when she left the room, suddenly, oh, everybody could relax, do their job, have a nice time. And then... When she came back in, it was like, oh, and it was like, oh, this is horrible. I'm so glad this is just a one-episode deal because this is, this, this is not fun. Because, you know, there, there are so many opportunities to deal with misery. Why bring it to the workplace, you know? So, uh, but for the most part, every, every TV, every film job, I've, I've always had, for the, for the most part, everybody really, really just wants to have a good time because we're all there for a long time, and, and it's it's fun. I still think of TV and film work as being really, really uh, glamorous. You know, uh, uh, the the theater, Broadway work, I kind of take for granted just because it's, you know, this is where I started. Um, but it is the most rewarding because of the live experience. But I still think of TV and film work as being kind of, you know, you know, glamorous. It, it is just because I like working because I don't do it all the time. I suppose if I had started there, maybe I'd have a different attitude about it. But for me, it's still always fun and different. And I'm always learning new things about the world of uh, television and film. Now, I want to give one more opportunity here for people to hear you sing. Oh, yeah. And uh, so is there a particular song or anything? Yeah, like well, you know, I, I was I was actually condemning L.A. as being like this theater wasteland. And, and that's really actually not completely fair because what, what has kept my soul alive is the, the Blank Theater Company in, uh, in Hollywood is actually the home of all of Michael John Lacuse's musicals when they get premiered on the West Coast. And there have actually been a couple of world premieres that have happened there. But uh, I've had the luxury of doing both First Lady Suite uh, under the direction of uh, Daniel Henning, who also directed that uh, Precious Sons that I was talking about earlier. Um, uh, so I, so my, I do my theater with Daniel Henning at the Blank Theater. But most recently, uh, between Scoundrels and this, I got to do Michael John Lacuse's uh, Little Fish with Alice Ripley, and um, uh, uh, it was, uh, so, so this, what we have here is a, a character who is um, in, uh, yes, I've just, I've just had a blood sugar crash. <laughs> I'm now, for those of you who can't, you can't see me, but I'm actually laying on the floor with my forehead. I have a, I have a stucco scrape on my forehead from where I went down. Um, the uh, it, this is a character who uh, is a former employee. Uh, oh, I just shorted out my cord again. How do I do that? Uh, I, I'm good. Um, I play a former employer of uh, Alice Ripley's character who is uh, attracted to her and is drunk on a many martini lunch that we had together, and I proceed to uh, hit on her and 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 then uh, and you think he's a pretty you know kind of uh, cookie cutter. Um, asshole uh, uh, pig, 
And, and then during the course of the song, we learned that there's actually a little more sort of tragic history behind this man. And so it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real small, I just kind of, it's like a cameo thing in the, in the arc of the whole show. But it's, it's really, it was really a lot of fun to do. And, uh, and this is a song uh, that's called uh, By the Way, which is sort of a, an ode to sort of Sinatra-style uh, crooning, which uh, Michael John had written. All right, let's take a listen. Lots of sons of bitches in the city. They get some pretty girl, I'll heat it up and juice, gives her egos a boost. See it all the time. Then another pretty girl gets their attention. Another gorgeous thing, just sitting at the bar, licking her chops. Well, hell, there you are. See. All the time Beautiful women go begging in the city Ought to be a crime Live here as long as I have Fish cake You'll see it all the time shouldn't smoke at your age. Cut your lifespan in half. Got a light? My ex-wife loved this song. By the way, bitch died, you know. My ex. Let's dance. Oh, no, Mr. Bunker. Call me Dickie. When you girls call me Mr. Bunder, it makes me feel like my father. Come on, feel sorry for me. I really don't think we ought to, Poor Mr. Charlotte. Bunder. Boyfriend dumps her and she doesn't want to dance. See it all the time. I've got so much typing to do back at the office. By I'll... the way. I think you're wonderful I haven't told you until now Forgive me By the way I think you're beautiful I should have told you long ago forgive me you're heaven sent to me you're simply meant to be but am I meant my love for you won't you say you think I'm wonderful Told me that you love me like I love you, and I love you. By the way. 
And uh, we actually just interviewed Michael John Lacusa, talked about Little Fish in his career a few episodes back. So, you know, if listeners don't want to find out more, they can go go back and check out that episode as well. I'm going to go back and check that out. <laughs> yeah, he was quite forthcoming. Oh, yeah, that guy will tell you. He's, he'll, he'll say it. If he's thinking it, it comes out his mouth. <laughs> and that's what you love about him. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a brilliantly gifted man and a blast. He was, uh, yeah, I've had two really great jobs uh, thanks to him. Yeah. So any word on when uh, the American cast recording is happening for Billy Elliot? Do you want my honest opinion as opposed to what I've heard? We've heard absolutely nothing. And I have a feeling that there may, in fact, not be an, a Broadway cast recording of the show. I think it may be uh, cost prohibitive. I, we, we paying 51 actors to uh, record this thing. And, and, and the, the album itself has not sold, apparently, as well as they had hoped from the West End production. So I think they're, they're kind of hoping to just sell the, the, the recording they've already... Because they, they did this... They, they, they didn't use, like, their little 17-piece tin band like we have in our pit. They actually had a big orchestra, like a big, big uh, studio orchestra do the recording that they did for the West End production. So... It costs a lot of money to do that recording, and I think uh, they're just going to kind of. My guess is that they're, is they're not going to do a, a recording. So what we need everybody to do is to write in and get them say, "Look, we want the American cast recording," because there's actually a lot of stuff that's different. Uh, the interpretation of the songs. I mean, granted, Mrs. Wilkinson's songs, Hayden, who originated the role is, of course, doing the same songs that she did before, but there's new versions of Born to Boogie that don't exist. And then you've got whole new versions of several songs. The children now sing Merry Christmas, Maggie Thatcher in our production. And I sing Dad's song in a very different way, in a slightly lower key. And there's the, the he could go and he could, well, I think in the, well, the West End production, it's, uh, he could be a star. But they, they, they've, I think it's still called that, but we don't sing that anymore because they just hated the way it was like alluding to, uh, you know, uh, American Idol, because it's that which is not the tone of that piece at all. So they, so uh, the the words he could be a star are no longer uttered in that song, and they've been completely reconceived in terms of how they how it's executed musically. So I think it's worth re, uh, doing an American cast recording. So everybody start start writing in, emailing in to the Billy Elliot website, uh, Billy Elliot the musical. And, and and tell them it's time to do a Broadway cast recording because uh, I think it'd be worthwhile. And, and I, this would be it'd be sad if we didn't do it. This would I can honestly, this would be the first Broadway show I've ever done that did not do a cast recording. And that that, that would be sad not to have it preserved uh, digitally. Well, hopefully people can go see you in the show. And I'd yes. love to keep talking, but I know you've got a six thirty call here. I do. Yeah. What time is it? It's twenty two after. <laughs> so we I'll be running out goodbye. the door. Fantastic. And thanks for stopping by. And, and My pleasure, Michael. Thank you for being so conveniently located. Okay. <laughs> Listening room. All right. Up next in our holiday CD gift-giving guide, we've got Kristen Chenoweth. I think a few of you may have heard of her. Uh, she's got a brand-new Christmas CD called A Lovely Way to Spend Christmas, uh, aptly enough. And we're going to play Christmas Island from the CD, and you can find out more about the CD at kristenchenoweth.com, and it's also available at fine retailers everywhere, including iTunes. Let's get away from slavers. Let's get away from snow. 
Let's make a break Some Christmas dear I know the place to go How'd you like to spend Christmas On Christmas Island How'd you like to spend a holiday To spend Christmas on Christmas Island. How'd you like to hang your stocking on a great big coconut tree? How'd you like to stay up late like the islanders do? Wait for Santa to sail in with your presents in a canoe. Once again, that was Kristen Chenoweth's song, Christmas Island, from her brand new CD, A Lovely Way to Spend Christmas. Find out more at www.kristenchenoweth.com or get it at retailers everywhere, including iTunes. Up close. James Barber should need no introduction to many of you, as he has been in leading roles in many shows on Broadway, including the recent Tale of Two Cities, as well as Carousel, Assassins, Urinetown, uh, Jane Eyre, Beauty and the Beast. And we've got him here in the studio because he's getting ready for his James Barber The Holiday Concert, which is happening at Sardi's from December 20th through January 4th. And James Barber, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? All right. It's getting ready for the holidays. I am. I'm always, I'm sort of perpetually ready for the holidays. <laughs> all, all, year, all year long. Well, we're going to talk about a bit of stuff here, but before we kind of get into your, your illustrious career, uh, tell us a little bit about James Barber, The Holiday Concert at Sardis. James Barber, The Holiday Concert. It's quite a title. Um, every year in, in Los Angeles, I do a, a big holiday concert. It's James Barber and Friends, and it's all my 
compatriots in Los Angeles who are theater people from New York or there for pilot season or, you know, just have moved there or local folks. And it was really fun. We just sort of did it impromptu. And it turned into this annual event. And so I'm here in New York, obviously, for the holidays this year. And I was, you know, Tale of Two Cities closed, unfortunately, prematurely, as and sadly a lot of things are doing right now. And I said, well, what am I going to do? So I'm doing my holiday concert. And basically what it is is a totally relaxed atmosphere where people can come. And, and the idea is that you're sort of, you know, in your own home, you know, having a bite to eat or having a drink and listening to great holiday classics, not only Christmas music, but we're going to throw in a couple Hanukkah tunes and maybe a Kwanzaa song and, and uh, it's, you know, and Broadway tunes as well. It's going to be like half and half. And then um, once Christmas is over, because the first part of the concert obviously is pre-Christmas and pre-Hanukkah or during Hanukkah, uh, then we're going to turn to more classic Broadway stuff with a few more, a few less holiday songs in, in the show. But it's going to be fun. We're going to have... Uh, guests from, you know, all walks of Broadway life. You know, we've already got some people lined up, which uh, I can't announce yet, but they're big stars in their own right to come in and sing a song. I do know Natalie Toro's confirmed. She's going to come in and sing Ave Maria. Um, and we have some other, you know, pretty big names that are running on Broadway now that uh, they're going to come in and sing a song or two. So uh, who's the playing the piano and who's your band? Or is it, is it just, it's just a, or? It's just a simple piano. Um, it's Jeremy Roberts. Uh, Jeremy Roberts, you know, has worked with Frank Wildhorn for years and years and years, created most of Frank's albums, worked with Linda Etter as her musical director for many, many years. And uh, we did the Dracula concept album together. And he's a great guy, amazing musical director, and I'm fortunate that he's available. And, you know, we, we started looking for venues. And initially in Los Angeles, we do it in a small theater, the NoHo Arts Theater out there, which is an amazing group of people um, run by James Mellon and Kevin Bailey. But... Uh, you know, theater here, they're much more expensive. Um, it depends upon what's available. You have a lot of things to deal with. And I more thought, and more is coming available. They are, you know, <laughs> and you can negotiate. That's why I said we should bring Tale of Two Cities back, you know, <laughs> make it a 15-person show with no set and, and put it in the Neil Simon. And, you know, maybe we'll run through the holidays. I mean, through the Tony Awards. Um, but, uh, yeah, so when we looked at that, you know, it's kind of expensive. And I said, you know what, the, the cool thing about what I do in these holiday concerts is it's, it's, a, it's a connection with the audience. So, you know, when you're on a stage, there's distance. You know, like I'm in a booth right now and you're, you're in, you know, your, your studio areas, but there's, you know, 10 feet between us and I can't, you know, reach you. I can't shake your hand. And that's what it's like on the, on the stage. So at Sardi's, we went to Max at Sardi's and we said, you know, what happens at 730? You know, let's do a second seating. You're, you know, people can come in, have you know, dinner or drinks at Sardi's, the icon landmark of Broadway restaurants, and uh, and then they can see a show, and I'm right there with them, so I can interact with them. And we didn't want to have a big band or, you know, distance between them, so it's me and Jeremy and a piano. And uh, where can people go to get tickets for that? They can go to smartticks.com, which is S-M-A-R-T-T-I-X.com, and the phone number is 212 Eight six eight four 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 four, or you can go to my website. There's a link there. It's jamesbarber.com, uh, and uh, and get tickets. All right. Well, thanks for coming in. And, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. See you later. Okay. Bye. <laughs> and next up, the cast. <laughs> so you've done so many things on Broadway, and you've had a a very enviable career thus far. Uh-huh. And to start off, I kind of like. I mean, there's all sorts of little things that lead up, but yeah. what was maybe the first moment? What was your first big break, i.e., 
the moment maybe where you felt like things were starting to come a little easier after that? Well, it's interesting. I, it, it's that you say that. I, I think they actually get harder, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, but to answer your first question, I was I had done the you know, the national tour of Secret Garden, and then I went to Cyrano, and it's an interesting journey. You know, I was in the ensemble of the Secret Garden tour, and the cast of the Secret Garden tour was myself, Douglas Sills, Roger Bart, Audra McDonald, uh, uh, Anne Renolfson, you know, people who then went on to, I mean, Audra, you know, I mean, yeah. she was playing the Aya. She had like, a, a, like f- you know, a couple of lyrics in a song. I think I've heard of Audra McDonald. Yeah, she's I'm, I'm still, still a little something. Sure, you know. Yeah. And Tay Diggs was in the chorus of a few small little awards. A couple of small awards, <laughs> and I think you know, I, she's yeah, you know, she's having a little difficulty now with her huge television career and her huge concert career. You know, she's amazing. And Tay Diggs was in the in the chorus of Carousel. Um, you know, and it's so funny, and that, that you know that when when you look back and you see your friends that are doing well, and Brian Darcy James in the chorus of Car- of Carousel, uh, and now you know, of course, he's th- the stellar performer that he is. But for me, um, and he was always a stellar performer. He just had the opportunity to show it. Uh, I, uh, I left the Secret Garden tour early to go do Cyrano on Broadway. And we had the same conductor that was doing the Secret Garden tour that was doing Cyrano on Broadway. So audition for that, got in that in the ensemble. And then uh, when Cyrano was closing, I had auditioned for Milk and Honey. It was a revival of the Jerry Herman musical at the American Jewish Theater off Broadway. And I got it. And I was playing this Israeli Sabra as this, you know, you know waspy Scots, you know, <laughs> as much as I could. Um, but uh, I sang I Will Follow You, which is this amazing tune. And that sort of, I think, turned the tide because the New York Times review, I think it was David Richards reviewed it. I was so nervous. And I don't really read reviews these days because uh, to me they really don't matter anymore, you know, and, um, in terms of what I do, you know. But, you know, I had my first big review and, and I, I won't forget my, my, one of my best buds, Mitch, and I, it was like midnight, and we took the subway down to find a New York Times, and I opened up the review, and there was a picture of me. And I went, oh, I don't know if this is good or bad. Mm-hmm. And it was a good review. So that started the, oh, my God, who is this guy? You know, where has he been? And, of course, my agents were like, well, I mean, he's been here for, you know, five or six <laughs> years. Then I got Carousel. From that, I auditioned for Carousel, and I, I got the uh, standby for Michael Hayden. And then Michael left, and I took over, which fortunately where I met my wife. Um, and uh, that was the, the point. And the ironic story is that my big break literally came at Lincoln Center with Carousel because my opening night I fell off the staircase and broke my right foot and was out of the show for six weeks, um, which did is you, an did interesting Did you story. want to do Xanadu too? Xanadu. <laughs> yeah, Cheyenne and I actually, he comes over and we roller skate around my apartment. Um, we share skates. We only, he only, we only have two, like one set of skates, so I wear the right one, he wears the left one. And we hold on to each other arm in arm. Um, no, he's a great guy. I love him. Um, but th- that sort of started it. But what became difficult was that I realized that whereas in the ensemble there are maybe seven or eight roles for guys, when you get into principal roles, there's one. So there's only one Sidney Carton. There's only one Billy Bigelow. There's only one Rochester and Jane Eyre. Um, so it actually becomes more difficult because the jobs become fewer. And... and I think the longevity of of people who do what I do, you know, there's there's Kudish, Mark Kudish, there's myself, there's you know Christian Hoff, you know, bless him, who you know feels so horrible for him, you know, with his injury, and but that's the thing is that it, I, I remember when when I read about Christian not being able to do Pal Joey, it, it, I immediately went back to Carousel. But the thing is, and, and I talk about it in, in in the CD that you have, is that um, 
I knew, and I, it, something had happened to me early on in life, and I said to myself, and I repeat it all the time, that I knew that if I, if I didn't keep going, I would never have the courage to look myself in the face ever again. So I picked myself up, and I kept moving forward. And that's sort of the, the sort of what I do in life anyway. You know, Tale of Two Cities closed. It was an amazing opportunity for everyone, and it was an, probably one of the greatest roles I've ever had the, the honor to play. But it closed. So what do you do? So you pick yourself up and you create something new for yourself. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I actually didn't have to audition for Tale of Two Cities. I got offered it, you know, in, in 2004. Yeah, you've been with it for a while. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, it, it comes easier in, in terms of people know who I am. But with that also comes the fact like, oh, well, no, we know what he does. He's not right for that. So sometimes you don't have the opportunity to go in. And Leon Cholgosh, for example, for, for Assassins, you know, people had seen me do Urinetown. They're like, oh, he's this dark, dramatic guy. They, you know, they saw me do Urinetown. I was like, wait a minute, he's funny. He can make people laugh. And then Leon Cholgosh, you know, here I'm doing these sort of romantic leading characters. And I go in and I, I, I didn't know what to sing. And, you know, I'm, I'm auditioning for this descendant, you know, Polish descendant who kills a president. And I thought, well, I'm going to hear, I'm going to sing I Hear Bells, a Maltby and Shire tune. But I sang it. You know, it's this upbeat, I hear bells in the summer night. Come on, I'm going to tell you. But I sang it like, I hear bells in the summer. Very demented. <laughs> i never forget Steve Sondheim laughed. And, but, of course, he talk, you know, Leon Cholgosh talks like this. It's very, very different than what I do. But thank God Joe Mantello gave me the opportunity to come in and, and, and try that. And that, to me, is what's interesting, the idea of being able to become these different characters. And that's what acting is to me. It's not, this is who this person is. He looks like that. He sounds like that. Well, you know what? He's an actor. She's an actress. They can become a chameleon. Look at Anthony Hopkins. You know, he plays all these amazing different roles. So it becomes difficult when you get to a certain point, but it also, there, there's, there's an ease to it, but there's also more responsibility that comes along with it. Now, um you also were involved, as you said, with uh, Jekyll and Hyde. No. Or, wait, I mean Dracula. Dracula, yeah. Dracula. Um, and the main reason I mention that is because we're about to play a song from, yeah. from that, I yeah. believe, from your CD. But yeah. tell us a little bit about that, maybe set up the song we're going to play from your yeah. CD. Well, interesting. I did, I did um, one of the readings of Dracula. I'll, I'll never forget. I tell Frank Wildhorn the story all the time. It was uh, when I was auditioning for Dracula. I didn't actually do the Broadway show. I didn't actually do the show. But... Uh, Tom Hewitt, bless him, who I adore, uh, did Dracula, and he was amazing. He's an amazing performer and, and an amazing human being. Uh, I remember Frank saying to me uh, at the final callback, he's like, hey, listen, you know, give Dave Clemens, who was the casting, give Dave Clemens your phone number because I, I want to be able to get in touch with you. And I went, I guess that means I'm not going to see you in a couple of weeks, so I probably don't have the job. Um, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't get it. Tom Hewitt got it. But then Des... Uh, who directed it, asked me to come and do Quincy in one of the readings. So I did that. And, uh, and I had learned the role, and Tom was out on tour doing Urinetown at the time we were doing the, the little reading. And uh, so I actually had to step in for Tom one, at one point, and then Tom came in and did, did the reading. And then when it went to Broadway, I was in Los Angeles doing another project, and Des said, we'd like you to come and do Quincy. And I'm like, I can't really do it. And, and see, that's where you get the question. Quincy was a supporting male lead. In, in, from what I'm used to doing, it's a smaller role. And again, there, you know, there are no small roles, only small actors, people say. But it, it wasn't where I wanted to go in terms of what I wanted my career to do. And I had another project happening. So you know, I, I told him I, I would love to have done it. But I ended up not doing Quincy, so I didn't end up doing the show. And uh, 
Then they were going to do a, a recording of it, but it was so expensive to do the recording, and the show was, you know, sort of closing. That what Frank did was because he owned the music and things like that. They um, the show was finishing, and they decided they're going to do a concept recording with other other voices. So it was myself, Kate Schindel, Norm uh, Lewis uh, did did a voice. Ewan Morton did a voice. Um, uh, Lauren Kennedy. Rob Evan, and we went into the studio and we recorded Dracula. And the thing about it was that there are songs on the Dracula CD, which hopefully will one day be released, that never made it into the Broadway show. And this was one of them. It's called Loving You Keeps Me Alive. Right. And this is from your... Uh... Yeah, we put it on the end of my, my CD. Frank gave me permission to do that, which was great. And, uh, and this is called Broadway in Concert? Broadway in Concert, yeah. And, and basically, live? Yeah, basic Broadway in Concert was a... I'd, I'd done a show with Hershey Felder, who did George Gershwin alone years ago on Broadway, and stellar performer, Steinway concert artist. And we did it in response to 9-11. And we did a big benefit in Los Angeles that John Ritter, bless him, hosted for us with his, uh, his wife, Amy Yazbeck, and uh, had all these amazing celebrities and you know Broadway stars come and, and sing and play piano and uh, invited people for free. And we had four and a half hours of music with people just sitting there and making donations to the Red Cross. And we realized that people needed to keep moving after 9-11. So we wrote a show called uh, Back from Broadway. And uh, it later became Broadway in Concert. And this is my half. We recorded it live. And my album is my half of the show with true stories about how I got to where I got, ending with Carousel on Broadway, with music like Soliloquy, um, If I Loved You, What You'd Call a Dream from Craig Cornelia, On the Street Where You Live. And we put uh, Loving You Keeps Me Alive on the end of the album. All right, well, let's take a listen to it here Great. before we continue. Sure. Loving you keeps me alive. Think again before you leave me. His love cannot be as true as the love I offer you. You're wasting time pretending you belong with him. Come to your senses. Loving you keeps me alive I'll be in your heart forever And you'll be a part of me From now till eternity You've talked yourself into believing he's the one Such wild pretenses The first time I set eyes on you I knew I'd never be the same I never knew I'd get such pleasure Whispering your name If loving you keeps me alive Then how can leaving me be right? Turn back and let me love you Stay with me and let us dance into the night
All right. So where can people find uh, this CD? They can find it on my website. It's jamesbarber.com. It's also available at CD Baby. Um, you, same click. You just click my, through my website. It goes to CD Baby. And uh, we'll also probably be having them at the venue at Sardi's. So you can get them there. All right. You started touching on one subject where I wanted to go in, that you brought up and kind of career path is for like maybe people who are trying to def- define them, their own career. Yeah. And there's a myth out there. Obviously, it's a myth with a lot of the names you mentioned. But I think there's a, you know, a big myth out there that, oh, you know, chorus people can't, you know, ensemble members don't rise to leading yeah. actors. And it's clearly a myth, not only yourself, but all the names you're mentioning. Absolutely a myth, yeah. But at the same hand, is it just talent that prevents people from getting noticed and breaking out of the ensemble? Or... How doesn't I mean? Because it's like this balance thing. As a chorus, as an ensemble member, a lot of times you want the need is to blend in more right. than to stand out. Yeah. So how do you do the your job as an actor, but still yet shine enough to start getting notice? And how did you do it from some of the other people you know and talk to? What helps an ensemble member start rising to a, a leading actor? Uh, a couple of things. Yeah. A couple of things. For me, it was the fact that I always stayed true to what I thought this character was going to be. And I come from an acting background. I studied Shakespeare. And I sort of fell into musical theater. Um, you know, I went to, did my undergraduate. It's all O'Neill and Shakespeare. There was, where I went to school, there was a reconstruction of the Globe Theater every year. And we did, you know, we did, I did Twelfth Night. I did Romeo and Juliet. And, uh, you know, m- many, many, you know, classic uh you know, classical plays, and we also did, as I said, O'Neill and Inge and, and all those things. And, and when I got to New York, it was, you know, do I play Lysander in Midsummer Night's Dream for 75 bucks a week or Cornelius and Hello Dolly for 250 And I'm going, I'm doing Cornelius. So I happened to be able to sing, um, and I hadn't really studied much. Uh, and I just, you know, I had an ability to do it because I used to, and it's also in the CD. My sister used to sing and she used to go to all these classic voice lessons. So I used to imitate her. And by luck, I, she had a good teacher. <laughs> it's true. And so I ended up uh, studying with a teacher here in New York. Sherry Anderson is an amazing teacher and uh, started making my way into musical theater. But since I came from it, uh, came to it from an acting background, I'll give you an example like Cyrano, for example. I was in the ensemble of Cyrano. And my character, and I think a good director, like Warren Carlyle did this with Tale of Two Cities. There wasn't a single person in the ensemble that did not have a specific character with a name and a backstory in each scene they were doing, even if they played 20 different characters. And even though the audience may not know what their character name is or not know the backstory, the actor's walking on stage with something in their head. So when you're walking down the streets of New York, you don't know who these people are that you're running into. You, you see a guy getting on the subway or a woman getting on the subway with a child, but you see what they're doing and you automatically think, oh, you know, if you're watching them, where do they come from? You know, is she a single mom? Is she this? You know, how old's the baby? Is it her child? Is she babysitting? All of those things to me make up a richness in the character. So that's how I approached it. So no matter what I was doing, ensemble or principal, I approached it the same way. Um, I played Jodelet in, in Cyrano, and we created his name. I created a backstory for him. And each one of those people that I was working with had that. And as we interacted, you saw the reality of who these people were, hopefully. So the first lesson for me was to always be true to the character. I never wanted to blend in. Blending in to me was bland. It wasn't interesting. And, you know, when I look at people in an everyday walk of life, people don't blend in. If they do, they sort of disappear. There's, there's something specific to everybody that you meet. Um, 
But there's also tenacity. I always joke that I, I never learned to dance because I knew that if I did and I needed money to survive, I would go to a chorus call and dance. Now, it's actually probably because I was lazy and I was probably a horrible dancer, unlike my <laughs> wife who danced with Baryshnikov. Um, but uh, I made a specific goal. I said, this is my goal and I'm going to do everything I can to achieve it. And there came a point where I was, you know, hey, do you want to go and do this show and you'll can be in the ensemble of this show or do you want to go and do the, a principal role in a regional theater production of blah, blah, blah that pays half the money that maybe nobody will see? And so I said, you know what? I'm going to make a choice and it's a sacrifice to go. I went and did the leading role or the supporting lead in a, in a, in a regional theater production of something. And that then my resume had, you know, the Broadway credit, but then it had the leading credit. And then I did, you know, I started to do things that had more prominence to them. And I remember I got offered, um, I got offered something that was going to uh, Scotland, to the festival in Scotland, and I got offered milk and honey at the same time. And my college mentor said to me, I was offered the great God Brown, and I was also offered, um, I'm sorry, that's not true. I was offered company. They did a musical in, in, in college company, and they also did Figaro. Uh, and my mentor said to me, do you want to be an actor or do you want to be a household name? And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he said, an actor would choose the more obscure thing. A household name would go and do the most prominent thing. And I went, well, I don't know. You know, I didn't really have the concept to, to do that. All I knew is that I wanted to do company. He wanted me to do Figaro. Um, <laughs> And I did company, and um, I, but I keep those lessons in the back of my head. So I think it's tenacity, and I think it's making the right choices. And uh, you know, Norm Lewis, Norm Lewis, and I—I I mean, Norm is in the chorus. So was I. You know, you look at people like that, and you look at the how the Paige Davis. You know, Paige Davis was in the ensemble of the Beauty and the Beast tour. Then she came out and, and got trading spaces on on television for TLC, then started doing principal roles. So it's about the journey, and everybody's journey is different, but it's absolutely 100% possible. And I also think about this, is that, you know, Audra went to Juilliard, and she's, you know, unbelievably talented, unbelievably beautiful, an unbelievably beautiful person. Um, you know, but she did the Aya in The Secret Garden, and then she went from there and got Carousel and won the Tony Award. And... You can go to Juilliard, you can go to NYU, you can go to Yale, which and there's great worth for all of those things. But for every person that goes to Yale and Juilliard that goes on to a stellar career, there's also somebody that is now, you know, either selling real estate or waiting tables. So each person's journey is individual. And uh, don't uh, my thing is don't let anybody tell you what you can or cannot do. You have to decide for yourself. Now, on the flip side of that, you kind of started hinting towards it. Once you do achieve a certain point, how carefully do you have to look at when it's because you have played supporting roles since then? You've sure. done like Solgast in yeah. Assassins and uh, Lockstock and your well, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you're in town's kind of a ensemble cast exactly. to begin with, but Lockstock I think is perceived as more of a supporting role versus you know Hunter, right? Hunter's role. Wh where do you make the decision that this is a supporting role that fits into my career? And this is a supporting role that's going to look like a step back. Well, ex exactly. And I think, you know, you know who rides that very well is Mark Kudish. Kudish, a smart guy. I mean, he does lead roles and he does supporting roles. And they always, I mean, he always works, you know, he comes out smelling like a rose no matter what he does. Because I think it's his attitude and it's his work ethic. And no matter what size role you have, if you do it very well, it's going to, you know, you're going to come out w with a great experience. So, 
you know, I remember when I got the phone call for Assassins, you know, I mean. I mean, is it, and how much of his creative, and how much does your agent, or does an agent fret over this perception, oh, too? Yeah. You know, um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I mean, my agents and my manager, are fantastic people. Like you're not going to be able to get as big of a paycheck in the next show if you're. Sure, that's a, that's a, that's a, a it's a very astute discussion because it's also, you know, your salary for your next show is based on your salary for your previous show. So in terms of a Broadway show, you know what I mean? You know, they, they you know, what do they call it? The, um, your quote. You know, it's called your quote, and it's the same in television and film as well. Uh, so, you know, when Taylor Two Cities closed, we were having discussions, and I was like, well, what about this? And they're like, well, yeah, but it's not the same pay scale. I was like, I don't, you know, so what? You know? And, you know, it, I'm a father now, you know, I'm a husband, I've got a house in California, I'm carrying an apartment here. So, you know, it does come down to economics at times. You know, you've got to take a job to, you know, to keep going. And, you know, I think one of the also, also the, uh, you know, probably the, one of the illusions that you have is that, oh, you're starring on Broadway. You're a multimillionaire, you know? Oh, it's, yes. You know what I mean? Because I, I see people that are like, you know, lay people. When I say lay people and people are not in the business, like, you know, you, know, you did Beauty and the Beast for all those years. He goes, oh, my God, you know, and you must be incredibly rich. And I said <laughs> to them, you know, I do okay. But at the same time is you have to realize that there might be, you know, six months between Broadway show to Broadway show. Or, or you know, somebody said, why don't you just go get another show? I'm like, yeah. that's like saying – you know, I'm coming out of, uh, you know, a, a college playing Division One football. Just, hey, why don't you just go sign up for one of those NFL teams? Just, you know, go sign up, you know? And, and it's I, – I play at that level, but, you know, and I got to wait for an opening, you know? Or I got to wait for the next team to be created. Uh, so – I think it's a combination, of, a combination of things. But look, when, when I got the phone call saying, you know, they're doing the revival of Assassins, you know, do you want to go in and sing for Steve? Yes. You know, and that was a very specific show. I mean, you got Joe Mantello directing. You've got John Wyman. You've got Stephen Sonny. You've got Paul Gemignani doing the music. And you've got a cast with Michael Cerverus, Dennis O'Hare, Alex Gemignani. I mean, it's Kudish, Becky Ann Baker, Mary Catherine Garrett. I mean, it's just an amazing Amazing cast, Neil Patrick Harris. Surprising everybody, I think. Oh my that. God, he's and one of the funniest guys on the planet, and this one of the sweetest guys in the world, and blew blew me away. And and every I would sit there because I was on. We would stay on stage the entire show. Once you killed your president, um, horribly enough, you would sit on stage and watch the rest of the show. And you know, I was pretty early on because of the the time frame where, where Shulgash, um, you know, was William McKinley's assassin. And so you got to watch it. And I would just sit there and I'd watch Dennis O'Hare, you know, go into the Lordy. And I would, I mean, there, I would cry at night on stage and try to stay in character, obviously. But so when you do an ensemble show like that, I mean, there, there's no question, you know. Uh, You're in Town, I had actually done the original workshop reading of You're in Town uh, years and years and years and years ago after the Fringe Festival. Um, and then I, I was doing Jane Eyre when they were going off Broadway. So I wasn't able, McCarthy did it, a brilliant guy. Uh, and what ended up happening was that McCarthy was going on vacation. So Mike and Matt Rigo, who are the Iraqa group guys, and here's an interesting story too. Aaron Harnick, Mike Rigo, Matt Rigo, and I used to play football in Central Park together. Next thing you know, the Rigos have this huge production company. They're producing Broadway shows. And they, they literally come up and it's like, hey, you, you want to come in? You're in town? I was like, okay. You know, because it's a great role. You know, it was a fantastic role and a fantastic show. And uh, so, and, you know, Tom Cavanaugh was doing it from Ed. And, and so, I, you know, I jumped at the chance to come back and do it because I think it's funny. 
And it was also something that I wasn't, people weren't used to seeing me do. You know, they're used to seeing me do these dark, brooding characters. And I had the chance to be funny. And I loved it. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of choice, I think. And you're absolutely right when you say it's choosing the right things for your career, you know. And the only role that I've done more than once, the same role in different productions is Lancelot and Camelot. Don't know why, but it ends up, I've done it like a thousand times in five different productions. Um, and I sort of always gravitate back because if ever I would leave you, it's this amazing story. I mean, it's, you know, it's a story, but it's an amazing song. And, um, but uh, so I make choices based on what I think are going to be interesting characters and, uh, and who I'm working with and who the director is. And, and sometimes you don't get that opportunity. It's just like, you know, hey, here's a job opportunity. Wow, okay, it's a good gig. Let me, let me go and do it. All right. Um, I thank you so much for coming in and oh, you're sharing welcome. so much about uh, your career and your life for, for our listeners. And hopefully they'll get down to see the holiday concert uh, from December 20th through January 4th at uh, Sardi's. Come on down. Tickets are actually, uh, we, we, we made our ticket prices affordable in, in this in this economic uh, blunderbuss. Only $300? Yeah, only $300. <laughs> we actually have, believe it or not, we actually have $25 tickets. And there's a $25 minimum at Sardi's, so you can have dinner and, and a show with Broadway talent for 50 bucks. All right. Well, fantastic. And I wish you the best of luck. With thanks so much. As you move forward, and thanks for stopping by. You bet. Thank you. The Producer's Perspective. Hey, everybody. It's Ken Davenport with theproducersperspective.com. You know, it's a difficult time to work in any industry right now. All this talk about recession and depression, and every day there seems to be a new show announcing their closing, uh, including one of mine, 13, uh, which is one of the shows I produced this season, is closing on January 4th. By the way, if you haven't seen it, definitely go see it. You will regret it if you miss it. It is definitely one of the shows that in a different environment would have had a different life. But with all this talk of gloom and doom, we're going to do something a little different today, and we're going to talk about the bright spot that can be found in this kind of environment. And there is one, believe it or not, amidst all this mess. It's times of recession, depression, or severe economic challenges when people are forced to look at what they've been spending their money on. Think about it. It applies to you. If all of a sudden you lost your job or all of a sudden your salary was cut, what would you do? You'd freak out a little bit, look around and say, okay, do I need the three double, no fat, no whip, latte, skim, chai, whatever from Starbucks this week? I don't drink coffee, as you can tell, because I made that up and it sounded horrible. No, you'd start to look at some of the things that you've been spending money on. Maybe you've cut back your HBO. Maybe you'd see if a friend could walk your dog instead of the dog walker. You'd do all sorts of things to bring your house back in order, in order for you to survive. In other words, you'd create a new model by which you could operate efficiently. And you would survive because that's what we do. And that's the bright spot of this, is that hopefully everyone who has been part of the problem, and we all have to take responsibility Hopefully, we can look at this model and say, what can we do differently to prevent this from happening again? And that's why I'm optimistic, because I think that's something that in this country we do very well. Not only do we figure out what we've done wrong, but hopefully we'll figure out so it doesn't happen again. So no more doom and gloom. We're going to get through this crisis. More shows are going to open than close in the long term. And hopefully one of them will be yours. 
One more thing, for those of you who haven't read my blog, do take a look. We're having our first ever Producers Perspective Social this Friday at New World Stages, and I'm buying everyone that comes a drink, and it's going to be great fun, a great networking event, a chance for you to meet fellow producers and actors and designers just like you. So check it out on the blog, RSVP, and we will see you there. I'm Kent Davenport for theproducersperspective.com. Next up on our CD gift-giving guide for that supreme Stephen Sondheim fanatic, uh, Masterworks on Broadway has just released The Story So Far, which is the ultimate box set compilation of the composer's work. It's a four-CD set with a great color book inside talking about the history. Over 77 songs, many never before released from all of his musicals, films, projects that were in development, etc. It's a fantastic holiday gift for that Sondheim fan. Also, uh, there is a special podcast by Masterworks uh, featuring Stephen Sondheim in several episodes talking about his career, which I'm sure many of you would enjoy. To find the link for that, because it's kind of long, just visit the Broadway Bullet show notes for volume 224, and there's a link to that podcast on there. In the meantime, from one of the many tracks from the story so far, this is the title track for the show Bounce, sung by Howard McGillan and Richard Kind. We've come a long way, we've been through a lot, we've learned how to bounce. As Papa would say, you're hot then you're not, you better learn to bounce. If something goes wrong, that's all right, bounce along, just travel light. You go off the track, don't look back. That's the thing that counts. You hit a few bumps, you make a few gaps, you learn how to bounce. You take a few lumps, you have a few laughs, and all the while you bounce. Don't dwell on the times that you fail. Remember the times when you sail. Find a new road, forge a new trail. You don't suppose this really is heaven, do you? If guys like you get to go to heaven, Willie, who has to go to hell? Point taken. Although if this isn't heaven, then where the hell are we? Yeah. And where do we go next? No cause for concern. We'll get by. Live and learn. All right, then die. So what if we're dead? Gotta look ahead. How true, how true. The road may get rough. Who knows in advance? Be ready to bounce. You needn't have brilliance, just resilience. You do it enough. You look for the chance. You see it and you pounce. When you spent, reinvent. We bucked a few trends. And with style, we made a few friends. For a while, from all we've been through. From dealing with you, I've learned how to... God damn it, Willie, will you put that crap away? The time up in Nome, gold up to our ears. We lost every ounce. Come on, it was fun. At the point of a gun? Well, then we get home, and who disappears? I had to learn to bounce. But we were a team. Now you were a team. The horse that we doped, that you doped. Just trying to help further your career. Well, when you got finished helping, I didn't have a career. 
It's the thought that counts. No, you're right, you're right, and when you are right, you're right. Of course, there was that time down in Florida. You skipped town, left me holding the bag. Sort of like that time up in New York when you skipped town and left me for dead. New York. You want to talk about New York? You're stuck in a jam. Your brother says scram. scram. You pack up and... Yes, indeed, scram. Listen, scram, sucker. I'm getting married. I'll get back to you. The brother you prize keeps telling you lies. You better goddamn well know how to goddamn... Oh, God, God damn you. I mean, here we are, team or not. It's bizarre how far we've got. Together again, two old men settling our accounts. Right to right, and when you're right, which isn't too The often. problem was mine. All I did was whine. You did sort of flounce with justification. Just frustration. No, I was a fink. I drove you to drink. What saved us was our bounce. That's how you survive. We just might come out of this whole thing alive with, with someone, someone to give. give. You are ahead. You not only live. You expand, you learn to adjust, you do what you must, bounce. All right, once again, that was Bounce, sung by Howard McGillan and Richard Kine from the four-CD boxed set, The Story So Far, out on Masterworks. Be sure to visit the show notes, get the link to that podcast that Stephen Sondheim is doing at the moment. And uh, yeah, that it's a nice box set. Probably won't fit in the stocking, but it makes something great to go under the tree. On the boards. Right. The Resonance Ensemble in New York uh, takes two plays every year, one in the classical realm and a new play modeled somewhere around the classical play. And this year they're presenting 23 Knives and Caesar and Cleopatra from January 11th to February 7th. And we brought back, he appeared a couple years ago on his show, Eric Parnes, who's the artistic director of Resonance, and he's directing 23 Knives. And we also have Ren Schmidt, who's acting in the both productions? No, just Caesar okay, and Cleopatra. Caesar and Cleopatra as Cleopatra. Cleopatra. All right, so how's it going? Good, good. We uh, we just started rehearsals this week, and uh, we have a great group of people together to put this season together, and uh, we're very excited. So tell us a little bit about um, you know, the concept of Resonance. I kind of set it up, but you probably can say it a little bit more eloquently than myself. Sure, sure. Uh, Resonance Ensemble was founded with the idea that there's a reason that classic plays need to be done now. Uh, there's something that has made them classic. There's something that's made them last, uh, a reason that they have appeal in kind of a timeless and universal way. So we felt like, uh, well, let's find a way to do those plays, and let's find a way to also create new plays that, uh, that also capture that timeless and, and that universalism. Uh, so we run those together. We, we take these classic plays, and then we ask a writer to uh, look at that classic play and create something that they think will uh, also last and will also be a modern classic. So, uh, Ren, how did you get involved with the company? Um, I actually, this is a funny story. Eric and I met when I first moved to the city. A friend that I knew um, was in the Lincoln Center Theater's director lab with Eric. And, you know, uh, I kind of thought you weren't from New York. Yeah. You, know, you know why? Why? The cowboy boots. Oh, well, these actually, <laughs> these are a very recent purchase. I actually went to school in Texas and never uh-huh. bought a pair, and I just got these. Um, but anyhow, uh, this friend uh, connected me with Eric, and I auditioned for a show that he actually wasn't doing with Resonance. It was 
at um, the John Cocteau Rep. So we've already worked together. And then uh, the director of Caesar and Cleopatra, Kent Paul, uh, he saw me in a show at Irish Rep and then um, in Come Back Little Sheba. And he, we also had a mutual friend, and so he just kind of approached me this summer and said, hey, I think this project's going to happen. I understand that you know Eric and you like their company. Would you be interested? So the, the story actually is even more a small world story because in addition to Ren and I working together and Ren knowing the director for Caesar and Cleopatra, the new play that we're doing this year, 23 Knives, is written by Chris Bowl, Christopher Bowl, who is the playwright who wrote the play that Ren and I worked on a couple of years ago as Jean Cocteau mm-hmm. Rep, Crazy for the Dog. So uh, it's, it's a funny story. I mean, that's, that's New York theater community. We keep working together and finding different connections and... Uh, finding different one, you know, when I find somebody I like to work with, I try to keep them around, and Ren's one of those. Yeah, it was cool, and also two of the actors from Crazy for the Dog are in Eric's show. That's right, they're in 23 Knives as well, so, uh, you know, we, uh, we we like who we work with, and we keep working with them. Now, in a theater community that is notorious for typecasting people, I'm, I'm really interested, uh, what was the inspiration to think of a red-headed Cleopatra? <laughs> well, you know, one of one of our one of our uh, big philosophies about approaching classic theater is that it is not uh, it doesn't have to be specific to any particular time or culture. Uh, when we look at Bernard Shaw's play, it's very contemporary. Um, even though we call it a classic, it is written in the 20th century. Um, it, it deals with a lot of uh, the same issues that we're dealing now with politically and uh, what's going on around the world. So when we look at a classic play, we say, you know, this is set in Egypt or this is set in uh, ancient Rome. But uh, when we cast it, we want to reflect the world that we live in today. And so if you come to see Caesar and Cleopatra, you'll see, you know, a redheaded uh, uh, Cleopatra. You'll see um, a, a very Anglo-looking uh, Caesar. You'll also see people from different cultures from all over the world uh, participating in this play because for us, the classics are universal. And, uh, we, Do you have we, an aborigine? We don't have an aborigine. <laughs> we don't have an Why aborigine. Why not an aborigine? We worked hard to get You know, it's out. funny because you can, as much as you can try to uh, create a diverse cast, you're always going to leave somebody out and somebody's going to go, why don't you have the aborigine in the show? Well, you know what? We, uh, we, we do the best we can, and we, we bring on people who we think are, are talented and who uh, have the right aura and the right, um, you know, the right temperament for the role. If you look at the film versions of, of Caesar and Cleopatra, uh, you, didn't, you also did not have very Egyptian-looking um, Cleopatras. And it's interesting, those, uh, f- at least one of the films was directly supervised by Shaw. Uh, Shaw did not intend for uh, the the casting to be that specific racially. He too so was that about the time that Marlon Brando played Asians. Yeah, you know it was around. The, it was around. The same. But it's funny. But uh, you know what Shaw intended to write was something that reflects his own culture and the issues that he was dealing with in his time. And so also when we want to produce the show, we want to produce a show that's going to say this is a show that's about the world, not necessarily about Egypt and Rome. It's about the world that we live in today. So the casting reflects that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and mention that. I mean, I, it's a, I think a lot of what gets into the people getting upset about, you know, white people playing color, you know, or, or, or vice versa or whatever, is more to do about opportunity for the actual actors than, I mean, my thought is, is you know, I used to act, and as an acting, it's fun to, to play anything. It's challenging. It's not racist. It's not... You're playing a universally human role. I, th- I think a lot of the controversy around some of those things sometimes gets down to the opportunity that you know ethnic actors have, 
that they're so rarely cast, you know, traditionally in the white roles, but... <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and we have, you know, we, we have uh, a cast uh, for 23 Knives of five actors, two of which are African-American. It is no reflection on um, the, uh, the, the culture or the time. It was uh, a, a choice of who was the best person for the role out of the available people who came into audition for us. You'll also see in Caesar and Cleopatra, we have Asian actors, we have Hispanic actors, we have African-American actors, we have white actors. It was uh, a reflection of who uh, carries the necessary qualities to play the role. And I think that's, for me, the best way to, the best way to cast. You know, we, we, uh, we cast the best person for the role. Well, for the people who aren't familiar with uh, Caesar and Cleopatra, maybe, Ren, you could give us a quick, you know, elevator pitch of the, the George Bernard classic. Sure, I'll try, I'll try and summarize it. It's basically about the time period in which um, Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy are fighting for the throne of Egypt. And Julius Caesar comes in following Pompey, who he, I guess, is kind of his archenemy. So he comes into Egypt to, to collect ta taxes from past historical things, as well as to avenge you know, himself against Pompey, who's been killed, and finds this girl who I think he instantly becomes very smitten with um, and begins to occupy Egypt and try and figure out the situation. And the, the thing is, is we've actually had the play adapted by Eric Overmeyer, and it's, it's a lovely adaptation, and he's really focused on the relationship between Caesar and Cleopatra. So that's really, I guess, like the the main focus of the script that we're working with is kind of their journey through getting to know each other and what he learns from her and what she learns from him. Because I think for the most part, it's about basically Cleopatra becoming an adult. She's, she's 16 in this play, but she's always been treated as a child. So I think for her, it's very much a journey of becoming an adult and learning her place in the society. Um, they actually met in real life when she was 22 and she was already much more of a ruler. So it really is kind of a debate between the two of them about how those relationships are founded. And I think it's the first role model that she's ever had. So I think for me, that's kind of what the play is about. You know, what I said at the beginning is more the history, but the actual real heart of the play lies between the two of those people. So It's interesting. A lot of people assume, um, a lot more people, I think, have heard of uh, Shakespeare's Cleopatra, which was in a play called Antony and Cleopatra, which was a love story uh, between an older Cleopatra, an aging Cleopatra, and Mark Antony. Uh, this I wouldn't characterize necessarily as a love story. This is a story about politics, and it's a story about uh, personal discovery and personal growth and growing up, not only for Cleopatra, but for Caesar as well. He comes out of the play a different man, too. Uh, so if you're coming in expecting Shakespeare, this isn't Shakespeare. This is something uh, completely different, I think, a lot more contemporary, a lot more political, uh, and uh, uh, people are going to really react to it in a different way than Shakespeare. It's not a love story. So now for your new play, uh, tell us a little bit about 23 Knives. 23 Knives uh, is actually the first play that Resonance Ensemble has taken from commission through reading, through workshop into full production. So it's a, it's a real turning point for us, and it's a great project for us to have uh, worked on something from a seed of an idea through full production. As I mentioned, Christopher Boll and I have worked together in the past as a director playwright, and he approached us with the idea to uh, write a story that takes place after Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, and obviously after Shaw's Julius Caesar, 
uh, character that uh, addresses the assassination of uh, the lead, you know, the most powerful man in the world, the assassination of Julius Caesar. What happened afterwards? Uh, he, he noted that there was a line in a historical text about a doctor named Antistius who uh, apparently did a medical examination of Caesar's body. Now, there has been nothing in history before this to, uh, that, that addresses the medical examination of a body to solve a crime. So uh, kind of, uh, a, a, you know, in an apocryphal way, this character has become the father of modern forensic medicine. Uh, and so it's a very interesting character, very interesting. Does, does he have the CSI quip? You know, yeah, uh, yeah. We were thinking about putting that sound effect in and everything from CSI. Well, no, you know, the, the, the smart guy who is like, what would it be for Caesar? Um, it, he won't be giving another speech. <laughs> something like that. Right, right. right. Well, the character is interesting. I'm sure a writer would write something much quicker exactly, than Exactly, exactly. Well, the character is interesting because what the, what, the, uh, what the writer has done is he's taken this one line in history and said, why did this guy disappear? Why did this guy disappear from history? We have this one reference to him, and he's never heard of again. So uh, it's kind of a mystery as to what happened to this guy, what happens to a doctor when he investigates. He, he gets to a position of great enough power and notoriety, obviously, to investigate the dead body of what some people considered to be a god at the time, and then disappears. So he uh, he, he tries to figure that out. So in addition to uh, having the mystery of uh, what happened to Julius Caesar, and he does, the writer does question uh, some of the traditional ideas about what happened to Julius Caesar, because we, we really can't ever know. Everything is, at, at this point, uh, artistic interpretation and history, as we know, is always somewhat subjective. So he's taken a different take on that. But it's also a mystery of what happened to this guy. What happened to this guy, Antistius? It's really interesting, you know, that you bring up CSI. We actually have the autopsy of Caesar taking place on the stage. We have a, a, a body that's being created. And uh, we're going to, we're going to, obviously, there'll be blood and dissection. And, and it will be, uh, it, it, I think it will be a very interesting thing for, for us to work on and for the audience to see as well. Um, uh, I think I think it'll you know the whole thing is going to be also very funny. So uh, if you combine dead bodies, blood, comedy, mystery, I think, and it's also even though it takes place in uh, ancient Rome, it's written with very contemporary language. So you put all those things together, and I think it's going to be a fun evening. All right. So now uh, the sh the shows are playing in rep from January 11th through February 7th. That's right. We're at and the uh, we're at the. Uh, the Clerman Theater, is that right? I think so. Uh, we're at the Clerman Theater. <laughs> Sorry, I had to think about that for a second. We're at Theater Row at the Clerman Theater, uh, at the dates that Michael mentioned. And is there a website people can go to to find out more information? Absolutely. Uh, www.resonanceensemble.org. Uh, make sure you put those two E's in there between resonance and ensemble at the end of resonance and at the beginning of ensemble. So it's resonanceensemble.org. You can buy tickets there already. Uh, you can also subscribe to our season. We have a three-place season. Uh, it's only $42, which might be the most affordable theater ticket in the city. All right. Well, Ren Schmidt and Eric Parnes, I thank you so much for stopping down here and hope you have a great holiday season and uh, look forward to your productions. Thank Thanks. you. Listening room. All right. And our final pick for this holiday gift-giving guide of CDs is uh, this year's release by Kelly O'Hara. Now, you might have heard her name. She's done a lot of stuff, including starring in the Can't Get a Ticket to It 
South Pacific as Nellie Forbush. She released a CD this year on Ghostlight slash Chickaboom called Wonder in the World. And this is the title song from that, which she duets with Harry Connick Jr. You can find the CD in fine stores everywhere, Amazon.com, iTunes.com, and uh, stick it in somebody's stocking. All right, this is Wonder in the World. I've been cloudy on the fairest of days. I've been doubtful, surrounded by praise. So I know what it means for you to love me, and it's worth all the wonder in the world. I've been taken and hustled and had, and I've seen lots of good times go bad. So I know.
All right, again, from Ghost Light, Shikaboom Records, that was Kelly O'Hara with Harry Connick Jr. singing the title track from her CD, Wonder in This World. Uh, you can find that at shikaboom.com. You can also find that at Retailers Everywhere and iTunes and stick it in a stocking. Top of the trades. The Broadway-bound musical Catch Me If You Can, based on the 2002 DreamWorks film of the same name, will have its premiere in Seattle this coming summer. The show, which has had numerous readings and workshops over the years, has music by Mark Shaman and lyrics by Scott Whitman and Shaman. Terrence McNally penned the book. New Line Cinema has won screen rights for the absurdly fun new 1980s set off-Broadway musical Rock of Ages, which is currently playing New World Stages. Variety reports that rock librettist Chris Dorenzio will not only pen the screenplay, but will direct the feature film as well. No casting has been announced. The production will mark the latest musical project for New Line. As previously reported, the company is currently in the process of developing a sequel to the hit movie musical Hairspray. Arden Theatre Company in Philadelphia bites into James and the Giant Peach by David Wood from the novel by Rula Dahl, December 10th, 2008 through February 8th, 2009 on the F. Otto Haas stage. Whit McLaughlin directs the project as part of Arden Children's Theatre. Opening night is December 13th. Unique animation will help create the dark and juicy world of the story. The titular peach will be more than 15 feet high. The show's look will include custom-made stop-motion animations as well as computer-generated animations. Found objects... Tissue paper, cardboard, plastic wrap, and paper towels are materials being filmed in the animation process. Five projectors will be used to project images to screens on stage. Quote, the animations are being used to enhance the storytelling on stage and bring to life the many locations and creatures James and the Bugs encounter. The ocean, the sky, London, New York, a rhino, an octopus, seagulls, end quote, and more, according to notes. Hayden Gwyn, who created the role of dance teacher Mrs. Wilkinson in the original London cast of Billy Elliot and is currently repeating her work for Broadway audiences, will sit down for a chat with host Seth Rudetsky at the December 11th edition of Seth's Broadway Chatterbox. The weekly live talk show, which includes interviews and performances from Broadway stars, is held at 6 p.m. at the New York Cabaret Don't Tell Mama. There is a $10 donation and a two-drink minimum. The donation goes directly to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, the nation's leading industry-based not-for-profit AIDS fundraising and grant-making organization. Hayden Gwynn, who is currently making her Broadway debut in Billy Elliot, the musical, was nominated for Olivier Awards for her performances in the London productions of Billy Elliot, as well as City of Angels. Well, that wraps up Top of the Trades for 2008. We'll be back with more theater news in our next episode in end of January 2009, for Thursday in January. Yeah, I guess that would be January 22nd. Curtain Call. Well, by the time we get back to you January 22nd, unfortunately, there will be a bunch of Broadway shows also taking their final curtain call. Uh, give you just a little list so you can uh, decide what you got to rush and get to see before it closes. First off, January 4th is kind of a bloodbath with 13 the musical, Boeing Boeing, Grease, Divided the Estate, Hairspray, White Christmas, and Young Frankenstein all taking their final bow. Spamalot will be closing on January 11, 2008, and Spring Awakening takes its final performance on January 18, 2008. As you're planning a thing, looking ahead, future closings are hanging in the wings as well, including Gypsy, All My Sons, Speed the Plow, and Equus. So if you hadn't had a chance to get to see any of those and you want to, uh, take a rush right on out. 
All right. Well, it has been a great year, 2008. I'm glad you've been here for the ride on Broadway Bullet. We're going to be back again, as I said, fourth Thursday in the month, January 22nd, with our first episode of 2009. And we'll be continuing every second and fourth Thursday of the month. Once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. Actually, the bar faith thing comes from my whole life. People just vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, to propose Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.